a classic dribbling dragon. Um, <laughs> I've never read Chekhov, so I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like that, right? <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading Thud, so square brackets, insert joke here, and square brackets. <laughs> and our guest is designer. Is that, are you really going with that, Liz? Is that what's happening? <laughs> I'm being the gooseberry. Ah, <laughs> why didn't I get <laughs> I that? I can do a better um, one, though, if you want. If you'd no, like an alternative. I just, the problem, the problem, <laughs> listener, is that that is literally almost what it says word for word in our script, and then Liz just fills it in with a joke. So I did not, I my brain misfired. Anyway, I'll probably edit all that bit out. <laughs> uh, and our guest is a designer and educator and creative learning manager for Sydney's Museum of Contemporary Art, Matt Roden. Welcome, Matt. Hello. How are you both? We're good. Pretty good. It's very lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. All right, I'm excited. Yeah, this is not your first time on a podcast, is it? I have definitely um, casted the pod before, as we say in the biz. Uh, so, sorry, if sorry, if anyone is a podcast, not a podcaster out there, you shouldn't know that, but that is what we could say in the biz. Sh- sh- mm. I'll have to. It's true. Look, I might, I might edit that out, but I think uh, actually that For none secrecy. of the professional podcasters listen to our show, so we might get away with giving you that information, listener. <laughs> How long have you been at the uh, museum? Because that's your relatively new job. Oh, look, it's been, it's probably like a year tomorrow or something. It's, it's very close to the anniversary of my starting there. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's it's the MCA. It's a very nice place to work. The art is good and the view is good. And it's nice working with children in that capacity. Because that's how one of the ways in which you and I know each other is we both worked for creative writing centres for children of a hundred-storey building in Melbourne, and you were at Sydney Story Factory for a while. Um, yeah, we um, we had a very nice meet-cute, if I can do this ever so quickly. I was doing a video workshop uh, with the Sydney Opera House, and Ben flew up to Sydney to observe this and did so from the green room. And then after that, we caught up on the phone before I had to run back into my next screening and within that workshop I'd been talking about storytelling and kind of the ideas behind storytelling and character creation and Ben said oh that was so good I really enjoyed this part where you said this about stories and it reminded me of um I don't know if you know um there's this author he's like this kind of um, comedic fantasy author his name's uh Terry Pratt and I was like yes 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 I know Terry Pratchett you went great great well he has this um character I don't know if you know about her she's kind of kind of like a witch and I was like yes 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 it's Granny Weatherwax I know and you're like, yeah, and one time she said, I was like, yes, yes, it's in the scene where she and Pastor Oates are walking through the forest of Uberwald on their way to the castle of the Count de Magpierre. I know what you're referencing, Ben. We're on the same page. <laughs> and um, thus began our relationship. It's true. Although I don't remember it being quite as combative as you're telling it right now. Um, but yes, yes, it was a wonderful moment. And then it turned out we also had all these like other people in common. It was, it was weird, but great. Yes, absolutely. 
Sorry, I amped it up for the audience. <laughs> I'm hoping the whole podcast plays out in that exact tone and, and manner. <laughs> well, I mean, every time Ben starts to introduce something about the book, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know, I read it. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. That'll make my job of explaining the plot as we go along very fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, very, very fun. Yeah. Mm, mm. I mean, although, as we know from this book, uh, who needs fun, right? It's the worst. Uh, uh, but this, this is our episode about Thud. Uh, the almost the last City Watch book. Can you believe it, Liz? We've, this is it's. It, there's I do like, not believe it, and I refuse to accept it. Oh, I know, I know. We're running out of Discworld books, Matt. It's weird having done this for five and a bit years now, and it's there's <laughs> not that many books left. But this is episode sixty-one. I should say I don't normally remember to do this, but if you want to talk about this on social media, the hashtag to use is Pratchat sixty-one. If you want to make any comments while you're listening back, we love to see those. Um, and please do, please do get involved with the conversation. Um, but we should kick off with a reading of the blurb. Coombe Valley? That was where the trolls ambushed the dwarfs. All the dwarfs ambushed the trolls. It was far away. It was a long time ago. But if he doesn't solve the murder of just one dwarf, Commander Sam Vimes of Ankh-Morpork City Watch is going to see the battle fought again, right outside his office. And, perhaps inside his own watch house. With his beloved watch crumbling around him and war drums sounding, he must unravel every clue, outwit every assassin, and brave any darkness to find the solution. And darkness is following him. It's very clearly not written by a troll because it says long ago rather than far in the future. Because, you know, <laughs> thinking about moving backwards in time. Yeah, That's yeah, true. That was fun to revisit that. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's dive into the plot. Cause this is a, this book is deep. There's a lot going on. It's quite long. It's oh, one of the longer good. ones. It's deep. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mm. It's deep and dark. So let's get into it. It does kick off with a murder. I mean, the first, well, not quite. The first things that happen in the book is we get a couple of little extracts from the writings of dwarfs and trolls. Something to attack about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do really love this. We have the story of what Tack wrote, as we learn it's called later on, which is the sort of uh, origin story of the world from the dwarf perspective, where it's written into existence. And there's a stone egg, a geode, that cracks open and out of the crystal comes uh, the first human and the first dwarf who are known in the story as brothers, which seems slightly weird. There's a lot of other creatures on the face of the Discworld. They don't get a look in, but it's uh, the dwarfs and the humans do. And then in this version, and we'll come back to this, what's left of the geode corrupts itself and turns into an evil form of life known as the troll. It's pretty gross, really, the way that they talk about trolls. But then we get the troll early writing, which is said to be extremely old, like I think half a million years old, which is this great kind of almost chanty poem. Uh, you know, him who mountain crush him, no. Him who sun him, stop him, no. Like, it's it's so good. I love it so much. And it ends with him who raised him head above him heart, him diamond, which is, ooh. Uh, we've talked uh, on our previous episode about what would you get as a Discworld tat. I reckon that's got to be up there. <laughs> that's pretty good. They really kind of set the tone for the whole troll dwarf rivalry. But I like that the the uncertainty about how like truly, like, how much we can believe what's written down is established as 
fallible from the very beginning in the first page with the the tax section they've got that little thing at the bottom that says in the original the last paragraph of the quoted text appears to have been added by a much later hand so their whole thing about we shouldn't just blindly trust history is established right from the first page and i really like that Hmm. i think it's really interesting whenever um religion like plays into the disc world because you know there's so much like world building around the fantasy that i feel like we're always catching up with like it's almost at this point in the Discworld series, you're fully caught up and parts of um, the way that magic works and the Discworld has been formed are really important and parts of it, you know, have kind of shuffled to the sides. Like we don't talk about, um, you know, the eighth magical colour very often at this point. And so it's both really cool to get new beliefs coming through or new ways that the world might work. And at the same time, I think really interesting to be like, oh, we're this, they're this far in and finally we're getting those insights into like dwarf and troll culture a little bit differently. Yeah. One of the things I love most about this book is that we see more of troll culture in this book than pretty much any other. Trollture. And we still, trollture, yes. And we still don't see that much really. Like we kind of get a little bit of a secondhand glimpse for the most part. I mean, there's some big revelations, but there's also still a lot that we do not know. And we don't really find out any more. This is about as deep as we get which I always, you know, I was a little sad about. I always wanted to know more about them. But we do learn a lot, so I'm, I'm going to be happy with <laughs> with what I get. But that sort of sets the stone, sets the stone, sets the scene. <laughs> I'm getting ahead sets of the myself. Stone. The stone. <laughs> yeah, um, and then we, we kick straight into the, the plot. And like any good, you know, crime or mystery novel, it starts with the mystery. It's title. Uh, yeah, it does start. Yeah, the, the title of the book is the first word as there's the sound of someone being hit on the head with a club, which sounds like someone being murdered, but we'll revisit that. And this is the context in which we come in is this rivalry between dwarfs and trolls. There was a great battle that they fought, as it says in the blurb, the Battle of Coombe Valley, long time ago, both sides claiming that they were ambushed by the other. And so they were in the right. And every year when its anniversary comes around, you know, tensions between the dwarfs and trolls rise quite high. And as has been stated elsewhere in the disc world, they kind of have a fairly natural enmity because one of these cultures is a bunch of people who are miners and the other one of these cultures is a bunch of people who are rocks. And that is not a harmonious relationship necessarily by its nature. But this is the, the sort of political environment in which we find ourselves. And it's being stirred up in Ankh-Morpork by some very um, sort of old school, conservative, traditional dwarfs, the uh, deep downers who've come to the city from, you know, the mountains where they live normally. Uh, and one in particular, whose name is Ham Crusher, has been giving these fiery anti-troll speeches, which are like, when you read the text of them, they're kind of horrendous. Like he just talks about how the trolls aren't really people and murdering them is kind of a kindness, truly horrific stuff. I guess it's that, you know, Pratchett's doing such a good job, which he does in other places of like stirring up for us. You know, we, I'm sure we will talk about this endlessly throughout the episode, but the way that like allegory and like how it impacts and when it's successful and when it's tricky, but like in this it's, yeah, well, like hate speech is hate speech. And if you can, you can write the patterns of it and you can insert different things. And maybe there's something nice in that all of hate speech is ridiculous because you can invent your own mythical creature version of it. And it still kind of just reads as gross and, and horrific. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting thing at this point in the series because 
we're told all along that there's dwarf and troll tension, but for the most part, other than in the really early books, you don't, I'd started to see it as something in the past that's sort of like not really a big problem. It's just like a little bit of a thing. And I don't know if it's just like current events or current events are always like this to see how it can like swell up more than it has in the past at, at moments when you think it's, it's over. In this book, I thought it was really interesting. And the way that he unfolds it in the early, I'm going to say chapters, even though they're not chapters, the early sections, where there's a lot of assumed knowledge. Like, we've heard a little bit about Coombe Valley in the past, um, and we come into this with assumed knowledge. He doesn't sort of lay it all out in the first few pages. Even all, like, the scuffles that have been taking place, all the things that Vimes have been dealing with, he doesn't lay them out. He just has little snippets of clues of what's been going and allows us to piece it together for a while, which I thought kind of shows like he had his really good storytelling era of it and it also makes it hit a little bit harder because I'm not used to this kind of unrest in this way in Ankh-Morpork. Pork. Yeah, there's a little bit where he's like coming in like mid-scene in some ways, which, you know, we, we know the characters that we're going to deal with like so well that I'm glad. I like, you know, I've been introduced mm. to Sam Vimes like a lot of times and obviously every book should be picked up by anyone, but you know, it, it hits the ground running with this different tone. It is like a contemporary crime thriller, maybe rather than a traditional one, where it has this like real world politics feel to it. And I'm even really conscious that the beginning of this conversation is us going like, oh, like hate speech. Um, let's have a yeah. dissection of that because <laughs> this book is, you know, we don't start with like some goofy magical thing or, and I say that as a fan of all of the goofy magical things, mm. but we, we burst into like racial tension or spatial tension in a way which I feel like when we had Detritus and Cuddy having an argument or the dwarf and the troll who are in the rock band together, like we've had these great odd couplings of dwarfs and trolls and they don't resonate as like, you know, that we're dealing with um, hundreds of years worth of like real problematic Mm -hmm. kind of societies trying to live together. Yeah, I think those earlier ones feel a bit like a buddy cop film from the 70s or 80s where they're sort of jokily making fun of each other. And and yes, it's when you you look at it on the surface, it's like that's racist, but also they clearly don't hate each other that much, like the kind of jokes they're making are not. Whereas this is like takes it much more seriously uh, and gets into the, you know, this is not just a problem between this dwarf and this troll. Like, this is a simmering systemic problem in the background of the whole city. And it's got a much more modern, like, realistic grounding. And I think it's interesting because it, it, it you see it in so much throughout the book. Like, people are constantly looking for non-magical solutions for things and talking about how they don't really believe in superstitions in a world where there are wizards and witches and trolls and all kinds of magic. But they're always going, oh, I don't know if that was real. You know, and every now and then there's a bit of a a slight acknowledgement that, oh, but there are magical things, but I don't think this is one of them. And then when later on, and we'll obviously get to it, but when magic does pop up and play like a gigantic plot point, it Mm. feels so strange. Like it almost feels like, you know, I was going to say earlier, the tone of these types of dynamics feels like it's shifted from like the Rush Hour series with Chris Tucker (laughs) and Jackie Chan having like a clash of cultures to suddenly Mm. being deep in season four of The Wire. And um, yeah. <laughs> and and if in suddenly you know there was like a dance sequence in the wire, you would go, "Whoa, this came out of nowhere." And um, yeah, I feel like this is the kind of interesting, weird space this book lives in. 
Yeah, it, it kind of reminds me of, you know, Bones, the TV show, was always trying to be a serious procedural drama. But then... Um, I don't think it was. Well, maybe not, but it, it sort of had the trappings of one. But then they'd go back to her lab and she'd have, like, a, an actual 3D hologram that could show you the inside of somebody's body and, like, all kinds of weird stuff. And you're like, this is Star Trek. What is going on here? Made by someone she found... Um painting caricatures on a boardwalk who suddenly got all these computer science skills and engineering skills where she can like just build a computer program that does not exist and still does not exist even like 10 years after the show um i have a lot to say about bones you shouldn't have brought it up oh no oh, i made a mistake well let's get back to the plot then um, <laughs> because very quickly we discover that ham crusher the most outspoken of these grags the deep downers who we should say they're not actually religious leaders i mean they they fulfill the the part of religious leaders, and that's what we would think of them as if, as a real-world allegory, but the dwarfs are always very clear that they don't have a religion. They have beliefs, they have a system, but they, it's not a religion, which seems fishy to me. I mean, it clearly is whatever they want to call it, but okay. But anyway, he's been killed, and the Watch only finds out about this because Captain Carrot, um, the six-foot-tall, muscled, clearly heir to the throne of Ankh-Morpork, who was raised by dwarves and so is, you know, technically a dwarf, has heard this from a couple of dwarf officers and tells Vimes. On the down low. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, that's rude. <laughs> Look, it's I can't believe that joke is not in the book, to be honest. <laughs> but yeah, he's dead and uh, the dwarfs don't want to tell anybody. They certainly don't want to tell any non-dwarfs. And then Vimes finds out that actually someone has told them they're particularly not to tell the watch and he gets a bit riled up about it. And gets a gang together, uh, not a gang. He gets his watchmen together. They're a bit like a gang though. Uh, and then he goes down to, posse. to Treacle Street where the, um, where the Grags are holed up and they've, they're living underground. They've based, they've dug their own mine under the city, which, um, nobody really knows how big it is or what the deal is, but, uh, that's where the dwarfs go. We had a question about this and I, but I think it's the kind of thing we might discuss as we go along. When they first go to Treacle Street to see the Grags and to try and investigate whether there has been a murder and what happened. There's all these, you know, dwarfs queued up and they describe how the city dwarfs come to the Grags when, you know, they need some words said over their dead cousin or they, they want some advice about what to do in, in business or they want this other, you know, they've got all these sort of cultural reasons to go and seek the advice of these traditional elders. And, uh, I mean, it, it's got a very kind of synagogue going to see the local rabbi kind of vibe to it, I think, or maybe the local imam, but it's, it's very much that kind of, thing do you think it just feels like general like it doesn't feel like any specific culture or religion to me it's just kind of that thing where you have like maybe you've broken away from your roots a little bit but when times are hard or when things are really at the end you go back to them yeah i feel like the way that the dwarf like traditional cultures are described in this and in um fifth elephant parts of it are like very orthodoxy feeling and i say that as someone who doesn't have huge amounts outside of kind of pop cultural experience with different orthodox religions. But I, d I think it's almost impossible not to draw some connections between that. And I don't think he's trying to do a one-for-one. -one. I think Pratchett mm. is trying to, in the way that he does successfully and unsuccessfully in other books, amalgamate some different ideas or cultural kind of touch points to give us something that stands in for that. Uh, but I do think it's tricky. I found it very hard not to read, I, not to find myself relating it to certain very particular religions. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, I think you're right. I think it is a bit of a mashup. And I think this is certainly a better job of taking sort of things that refer to other cultures and kind of putting them together in a way that gives a specific impression, but doesn't have any kind of really specific things. Like, I, I mean, because, I mean, you could say it's a bit like some people's, you know, relationship they have with a, a Christian pastor as well. Like they go to them for advice, but it's, there are certain things about it that do suggest some kinds of religion and some kinds of cultural setup more than others. But I, it's, it is a bit of a mashup though. And I think it works really well as a kind of stand in. Mm. But the deep down is they have some, I mean, I do love them. There's, there's some really interesting stuff that he's put in there that is definitely not from any real world sort of thing specifically. That we know of. Uh, well, yeah, that's true. I guess we wouldn't know. They'd be deep down under the earth, wouldn't they? But the, the deep downers do dress in this sort of, I just said this is not like any real world stuff, but there are elements of this in the real world. They dress in some kind of weird outfits. They cover themselves completely. You can't see them at all. And they, but also they never come out into the light. They stay in the darkness and underground. And they have a guy whose job it is to be there. Uh, and the term, it's a great term, is their daylight face, uh, who's a younger dwarf who was studying with them named Helm Clever. And his job is to like go out into the city and do the stuff that needs to be done during the day for those dwarfs. Uh, but they don't get in to see him immediately. There's a whole thing with the guards. And there's a great bit that I just want to mention where the guard on the door doesn't want to let Vimes in. And Vimes kind of says, you know, this is one of those times where really the best thing to do would be to go inside and ask someone else what to do, because then it's their problem and you've done your job. And he's like, I can't leave my post. And he says, don't worry, I'll stand guard for you. And it reminded me so much of when Ford Prefect in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy convinces the guy who wants to knock down Arthur Dent's house to lay down in front of the bulldozer so Arthur can go with him to the pub. And it's not quite the same, but it just gave me, it just gave me that vibe. I really enjoyed it. Hey, Ben, can I, can I ding you? Yeah. I don't, I don't think we want to call them weird clothes. Oh, that's I think they're just like, I just think they're like culturally specific clothes and they are outside what other Ankh-Morkian uh, citizens wear. And like we're talking about, and I think this is what is really interesting and also really tricky about this book is like some of it is allegorical and some of it is easy to compare to other things. And um, obviously I think for a lot of the members of the watch who are kind of our stand-ins in this book that we're reading through, through their eyes, they don't understand this as a clothing option, but I do think it is easy for us to, I mean, we, we can get into it as we go along. Um, the way that do we want Vimes to be our stand in, in this book? Because there's mm. lots of ways that he acts, which are pretty, um, unheroic. Apologies just for jumping in so late on that one. But, uh, yeah. Interesting. No, one. you're right. And I think it is, it is easy to see things through the eyes of the sort of the, um, the protagonist because Vimes's voice is the loudest and strongest one in the book. And, and yeah, that's, mm. you know, I've totally adopted his way of thinking about that. And that's not a very critical thing for me to do. So thank you for uh, pointing that out. Right from the get go, he's always got this anger in him. That's obviously something that's going to come up a lot in this book, but it's there from the start. Like, you know, it's mm. the whole thing with him coming to the Treacle Street mine is he's annoyed that they think they're above Ankmore Pork Law or below it in this case, as many jokes are made. And that's what really gets him going. And he has all these speeches where he says, no, this is Ankh-Morpork and we have law here and everyone who lives here is beholden to it. And he even gets challenged on it at one point by the dwarves. He says, you can't expect me to come in here and have to do what you say. And they're like, well, why not? You expect us to do what you say and abide by your rules. Uh, and you're like, yeah, okay, good point. So you're right. I mean, I don't know if we do want to take his perspective uncritically. 
especially considering what happens to his perspective slowly and quietly <laughs> for the rest of the book. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I think it's so interesting that this for me feels like the first book where Vimes and by default the watch that he's built has become the status quo. There's all these books where he's fighting against the status quo, which is the Vimes that we love. It's like Vimes is the underdog where he's looking at how society is built in Agmorpork and he's saying, well, this isn't right. There's no equality. The rich get richer and everyone else suffers. And he's pushing against that so much. And that's hugely inspiring and noble for like a character that we love. And we're at this point in Vimes's career where he is now, what is he like? The third most powerful man in the entire city. Uh, and. Yeah. And he does have this attitude, which I would say is Lord Rustian in some ways, where it's just basically like the idea that you're doing something that I don't agree with based on a set of principles that I've decided is unacceptable. And um, that's about as far as I'll think about it. You know, I read this probably when it first came out. I caught up to Discworld reading at a certain age and then was reading them year by year. And I don't think I kind of could pull it apart at the time, but I haven't gone back and revisited it. And there's other City Watch books which I, you know, would read once every three years or something because they're just so much fun. Mm. And this, you know, I want to give Terry Pratchett the benefit of the doubt because he's a fantastically smart person and an author who's making decisions. Uh, but it is so hard rereading this book and feeling like my underdog hero had become part of the overclass and that we were still in his perspective as well, that we're like, yeah. I, I think it's really interesting. I think he's an author who likes to challenge his audience, but this is the first time I can think of where it's like a protagonist who is forcing us to challenge our conceptions of like, do we want to say goodbye to Sam Vimes at periods in this book or, or hear about someone challenging him in a more direct way? Yeah. I mean, I think Pratchett has his cake and eats it too a little bit on this score, I think, because he does demonstrate that Vimes is kind of king against the establishment, but it's not his establishment if that makes sense. The Grags, the Deep Downer Grags, really represent the sort of old school establishment of traditional dwarf culture that has become oppressive and corrupted, um, as we find out through the book. But he doesn't know that at the start, and he still goes in all guns blazing. So there's a little bit of it goes a little both ways, but I think maybe that's, you know, that that in itself is a bit of a problem because there's no traditionalist view in this book that is okay. Right? All the people who are shown to be truly traditionalist, old school, you know, believers in the old ways are all members of this corrupt faction. I mean, the closest you get is the low king of the dwarfs and he's portrayed as being quite progressive, even though he's a deep downer. So, yeah, I think even with that in the mix, I kind of agree with you. Like it is, yeah, it's, it's not the same. And I think that's true in the fifth elephant as well. And I, when we talked about that book, particularly at the end where, you know, he kills the werewolf. Um, and just in case you haven't listened to the podcast before, we will spoil books that we've talked about before. We would try not to spoil anything we haven't talked about yet. Uh, but there is a bit at the end. He kills one of the werewolves, but does it by the book. So it's okay. And you're like, I, that did really did not sit okay with me then. And I think there's stuff in this book too. That's not as bad. I don't think it's as bad as anything that happens at the end of that book, but it's, there's some moments in this book where you're like, I don't know if this is all right. Well, I feel like part of it is also like if you're someone whose whole life, your moral code isn't actually something you come up with yourself necessarily. It's something that's written out for you. Like you have a book, literally a book of this is what's right and this is what's wrong and this is what's legal and this is what's illegal. And you adopt that as your life. You don't actually have necessarily, I'm sure there's people in the real world who are able to work outside this, but 
you're outsourcing your moral decisions elsewhere. And if you live that for too long, you don't have a moral code. You just have a guidebook. So it's not what's right and wrong. It's what's okay and what's not okay according to these guidelines by which someone else has decided society should be structured by. So mm-hmm. maybe it's also in some ways seeing the natural progression of that or just us seeing that more clearly through his actions as he gets more power. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, this is a rebuttal, Liz, but, you know, this is the guy who would have marched the king out and chopped off his head, repeating the actions of his ancestors. And that's certainly not by the book. That's holding, you know, we've been presented with that as this way of holding truth to power and it kind of being this, like, Mm. mythic idea of... Uh, I had a real trouble with this book. I'm just, oh, oh, yeah, with this idea of, like, what is power and how do you wield it and when does when do the conventions of story that this book you know, it wants to be like a fun adventure at the same time as it's grappling with this stuff. When do we want that big swinging the axe moment? When do we want an assertion of power, like a big uppercut? Because a story has told us that that's what should be coming. And when do you actually step back and go like, oh, this is, you know, there, there, there has to be other resolutions. I feel like your criticisms are a lot more um, honorable than mine. Um, <laughs> so this is not a rebuttal. But I, I found myself, this isn't like, because I still, I can't bring myself to not love Sam Vimes, even though there are issues in this book and the last one, as Ben says. But I kept finding myself going, why is he complaining about the newspaper? They're just doing their job. The whole time, anytime the newspaper does anything, he's like, well, did a cartoon of me. And I also, how dare they take a photo of Carrot outside the thing? And the, the newspaper would do no right. And obviously I'm coming now from a place of bias, but that from me the wrong way, which is, mm. again, less honorable than your criticisms. No, I just think that now that you're getting a paycheck from, um, you know, those dirty grey rags <laughs> that you're... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> These are sold out. Yeah, from Big Word. <laughs> I do really love the political cartoon, like the newspaper cartoon continuum. Oh, it's, it's one great. of my favourite things because I love the old ones from, um, is it Fizz, the original one, the PH versus yeah, the Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that just, that style of old newspaper comic, which, you know, a lot of them are kind of horrendous when you look back at them, but they're a way of symbolizing the world that is very funny in how um, broad swiping it needs to be. So I was really thrilled that one of these popped up. And I love that they always felt the need to explain the joke. Like they'll draw the metaphor, but then they'll label it excessively. So you ne- you cannot mistake what it is, the point that they're trying to make, uh, which is certainly how the ones in this book are described. I, I want to get on with the plot, but before we do, I think the other thing I want to just <laughs> shove in there that I think is part of the problem is that, you know, this is not law and order. This is just the cops. There is no point where we ever interface with a judicial system or indeed a political system in these books. The only politics is like cloak and dagger, like the leader of this. It's, it's kings, basically. Like the patrician is a stand in for a king. He's, he's not a king, but he's an absolute ruler. And the other places that he deals with have kings. So there's that level. There's no sort of members of parliament or people enacting laws. And there's no judicial system. That's always kind of just, that happens after the story is over. Like we never see a court case. We never see anyone gathering evidence. We never see what justice is done. It's very cops and robbers, Wild West kind of justice in the Discworld books, even when there's all of this modern and very British, which is something else I think we'll come back to, idea of policing that's in there all the time. We still never get to someone being in the dock and saying, yes, my lud, no, my lud, you know, like and having to give evidence, which is like a whole missing part of what happens in the real world, which I think is one of the things that also complicates our relationship with Sam Vimes, because he's kind of our last word when it comes to justice in these books. There's nobody above him apart from the patrician. 
I'd never thought of this, but when the two of you get that question occasionally, like what else do you wish the Discworld dealt with? I something like a law, like a the a good wife drama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want. <laughs> Yeah, I want the good dwarf and I want it to be about a dwarf entering the league. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes! Oh, Oh, now I want that as well. I can imagine, like, Cheery being the police representative of of, in that show, Mm -hmm. uh, giving the evidence because, you know, she's the forensic one. She's, like, the expert witness. And then, yeah. Mm, Igor. Igor Igor would be in there. Yeah, Yeah, that would be great. Uh, The joke where Igor has to raise his hand and, um, yeah. (laughs) It's not someone else's. Oh, that's so good. Now I do want to see that. That would be amazing. Mm. Please listen there. If you know who you think would be in the Discworld legal drama, let us know. Hashtag PyChat61. Let's get back to the pod because there's so much to get through. Let's We're, we're going to rocket through this. If you've read the book, we are yeah. not going to be able to get into all of the detail. As Liz has talked about, uh, I write way too detailed notes. I couldn't- He writes a novella about each, I, each book. I couldn't do it and for like, this one. I'm like, I've read a whole book. I can't be reading a no book about a book. I know. I need but- to order my thoughts, Liz. <laughs> but anyway, so they go to Treacle Street to find out what's happened to, um, Hamcrusher, the Greg who has died. They try to stop them from coming in, but eventually agree that, okay, well, Vimes threatens basically that he will bring the force of the city down upon them and it will basically be a war between them and the city. And he'll question the legality of them digging all these mines underground and all that stuff. And so one of the higher up Grags, a guy named Ardent, agrees to take Vimes down to see the Council of Grags to determine what he is allowed to do in terms of investigating this death. And sort of leads him on a bit of a merry goose chase around the place. Vimes feels like he's just being led around to piss him off. So he decides to head off down a corridor on his own. Nightmare fuel. Like, even if someone was leading me around, like some labyrinthine underground thing to piss me off, I would not just head off on my own because you can just get lost and die. It's so dark. It's like being in a submarine got down some yarn. There, the way that it's described because it's partially flooded. They've got like a machine that's pumping it out the water and they've got all these big steel doors that are watertight to stop any compartments flooding. So it feels like it felt like a submarine. Anyway, he goes down one of these places. He touches a door and hurts himself, but he makes his point, which is that Stop dicking me around. Let's cut to the chase. And he has an audience with the Grags who basically don't really like it, but don't see a way out of allowing him to investigate it. But they want him to appoint a smelter. And at Angua's suggestion, she's like, can Karen to do it? He's a dwarf. And he's not really dwarfy enough for the deep downers, but he's kind of, he'll have to do. While editing this section, it struck me that Vimes demanding entry to the deep downer mine feels a lot like police or government agents demanding access to a mosque in something like, say, Ms. Marvel. Since Vines is our protagonist, and we know the dwarfs are hiding a crime, it's not quite the same, but still... Remember, too, that this was written a few years after September 11, and all the sympathetic dwarfs are outside the mine, including the big man in the dwarf community, who's one of the cops. They agree to do that, and Carrot's going to come back with Angua and new recruit to the watch, Sally, who is the first vampire in the watch, something that Vimes has basically been politically manoeuvred into accepting because he's had this long-standing prejudice against vampires. But, in, you know, vampires in Ankh-Morpork, the ones who are allowed to live there, they've all sworn off the beaverd, as they call it. And there's a great bit early on where they see Otto, who is the photographer, if you remember from The Truth. Um, My favourite vampire in any media. He's so good. And there's the just the bit that really sums him up, where there's a crowd, like, protesting that there's going to be a vampire in the watch. And Otto is there to take a picture, and they're just paying no attention to him. And Vimes is like, 
don't they hate you? And he says, I make them laugh. And then Vimes kind of looks at him and goes, yeah, he's wearing an opera cape. He's got like his silly accent that he's clearly puts on uh, more than he needs to. And he sort of bumbles around and occasionally turns his to ash because he's taking photographs and they think he's funny and they're not afraid of him. I was like, ooh, that's a thing that happens in real life. Absolutely. Oh, totally. It's like it's a great analogy for code switching, like whatever. Um, yeah. Whatever group you identify as being part of and how you act in and out of different groups. Yeah, I also really love Otto and was thrilled that he popped back up. Yeah. Yeah, he should be in every book. Yeah. We don't see any of the other Times crew, unfortunately, but at least we get we get some Otto. We get some headlines, though. So, I mean, we know that. They're there. Probably Sakharis's on it. They're working away <laughs> in the background. Absolutely. Meanwhile, another mystery is Foot. Fred and Nobby, who of course are in this book too, are on patrol. Yeah, why has Nobby got a hot girlfriend? No, that's not the mystery. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's presented a bit like it is, isn't it? We'll get into that, I'm sure. But they are on patrol when they discover that someone has stolen a massive painting of the Battle of Coombe Valley called the Battle of Coombe Valley by a weird guy named Methodia Rascal. Um, who went insane while painting it, heard voices, the whole sort of traditional fictional idea of what insanity is like. And it's so famous that there's also a book written about it called the Coombe Valley Codex, which is our clear analogue to the Da Vinci Code, claiming that there's a secret in the painting. But now someone's someone's nicked it, even though it's huge. It's huge. It's like the Bayou Tapestry. It's that big. Uh, and it's a bit of a mystery how that's been stolen. So I read up um, when I was looking around for some notes and, you know, ideas to steal and say on this podcast, um, <laughs> there was these great references to, which I didn't know really existed, that how these like cyclodrama paintings happened. And like one guy mm. really was at the forefront and painted these amazing war scene dioramas that you could stand in the middle of and be completely immersed in. It's one of like a zillion things that you find out because you read a Terry Pratchett book because that's what you do instead of doing like a art history degree or something, which helps you find out all this other stuff. It's really his thing, isn't it? Like just to, you know, he would yeah. do so much research. He'd read up about stuff. And he'd find out about something. He'd probably write it down, wouldn't use it in the book he was currently researching for. And then later on he'd be have, oh, I can use that in the plot, which is something he never really does with stuff from his own previous books. Although he does do it in this book because the next thing that happens is that Vimes is summoned to a meeting with Chrysoprase the Troll in the Pork Futures Warehouse. This is not where you thought go. it was going, did you? No. Uh, that's all right. You thought, what did you think I was going to talk about? I thought it was going to be like like Sally and Angua's great adventure where they sort of like bond while they're both in their animal form and it, well, not quiet. And then it's just kind of like, and then the Sex and the City storyline takes off for some reason. But, <laughs> yeah, we'll know. get, we'll get to that for sure. I feel like with this book, there's a few things that Pratchett seems to be setting up that then don't really go anywhere like they they're sort of just a bit of an aside and they make them i enjoyed the journey um yeah oh yeah like i i don't really it's not i don't have a serious complaint about any of them um and this isn't really like this is the least of them i think this work scene works perfectly well on its own because this is that classic of crime literature of the organized crime boss who decides to have a meeting with the cops because something has happened that's so awful that even this person wants to see justice done I really like this scene. I, I really like this character. It's always really fun when he pops up. It's like such an old school gangster kind of riff, like a noirish sort of. So the, the bit that always sticks out for me in this is the gesture that he has the big fur cape on. Um, yeah. And you think it's because he is always taking on these kind of human affectations because, you know, no one does crime better than a human. So that's his kind of, you know, aspirational space. 
and then both it being slightly generous and slightly um, patronizing that mm. he has it there for Vimes because Vimes can't survive in there. I, I just, I like it. It's clever. That was great. And then it leads to that great moment when the meeting's over and he tells him he can keep the coat and give it to his wife. And Vimes is like, oh, I almost walked out with this. No way. I'm not taking a bribe from this guy and gets desperate just to blow it to bits. It was a nice touch as well. I mean, he doesn't really, it's an interesting scene too, because I don't think Christ of Praise really tells Vimes anything he doesn't already know, because we, I think it's pretty clear to us as readers from the get-go that a troll did not kill the Greg. Like, that's the story that the deep downers want everyone to believe, but it doesn't seem like that's really what happened. Oh, we know it's a conspiracy. <laughs> like, the, the, they, they still, like, lace everything with, yeah, it's not what you're being told. Like, so I think... Yeah. You doubt everything. I also think it's, um, you know, Terry Pratchett using the cards that he's uh, dealt himself throughout his writing where it's like there aren't a lot of notable troll characters, you know. Yeah. Like we, the ones that are there are fantastic and Detritus is like a total favourite of mine. But it's like who in the troll community can we jump to and hear how Coombe Valley is affecting them? And this is one of the examples that he has there. Whereas the fifth elephant has done all that work of introducing us to the deep down dwarves and we can slip straight into that kind of space. Yeah. No, totally. Mm. We also get the hint here of the flip side to the deep downers when Vimes asks Chrysoprase about this mysterious figure that there's troll graffiti for all around the city, Mr. Shine, and he says, oh, he's just a fairy story. It's, it's just a... He's a cleaning product for us. <laughs> yeah. That was a weird gag, like when Fred tells Vimes, and I do like that there's this early conversation that we've skipped over with Fred and Vimes where Fred sort of tells Vimes what's up because he's got, you know, he's he's the man on the street, he hears things. And there's a great little passage about how Fred is very stupid in some ways but very smart in other ways and he does hear what's going on. Um, and he's the one who first brings up Mr. Shine to Vimes and Vimes goes, does it take stains off surfaces or something? And I had to stop for a second and go, does Vimes know about our world? Because I'm pretty sure there's no Mr. Sheen cleaning product <laughs> on the disc. And there was a few moments in this book where I was like, I get that Vimes is meant to feel very like modern and real world and grounded to us. But sometimes I felt like maybe it crossed the line a little bit into, I don't quite believe that you're from the world that you're from anymore. I just think that's like a reach for a gag. I'm okay with it. It didn't make me feel like he was bleeding through dimensions. Um, sure. <laughs> Good. Okay, fair enough. That's just me then. But if he, he was bleeding through dimensions, um, a quick wipe down with some Mr. Sheen would help the situation. <laughs> We'd absolutely sort him out. Yes. But after he's been to the meeting with Christ Praise the Troll, we also get introduced to a very important part of the book, which is that, um, first of all, Vimes has a new disorganizer, a great joke, which I only, I don't know if we've mentioned this in the podcast before, but disorganizer is a pun, not just on it's disorganized, but also dis is a city in hell in Dante's Inferno. Oh. So that's where they come from. The imps, they're summoned up from hell or created as we find out in this book. They don't, they don't exist before they're created to fulfill this function, which has a whole set of ethical questions about itself. But anyway, he's got a new one. It's the Mark V. It's the Gooseberry. And unlike ones that he's had before. This one actually seems useful, as we'll get into. But uh, we find out that he's got one of these. And at this point, it's been quiet because he asked it not to interrupt him while he was in the meeting. But now it tells him it's nearly six o'clock. And there's Freaks Vimes out every day he has to be home at six o'clock to read his son, who's very, very small, and who we found out was going to be born in The Fifth Elephant. He has to read him his favourite book, which is a picture book called Where's My Cow? And now for a deep discussion about that book. No, I'm kidding. 
<laughs> we'll get to that next episode, Lister. Um, but it is a book within a book here. And it's, I mean, in this book, it really just, the point of it is it's the thing that Vimes reads and it's a pastiche slash parody of every farmyard animal picture book for kids that's ever existed. But it seems like it's actually a pretty great one. Like I would enjoy reading this if it was a real book. And we'll get on to the- Hyper local. Like it's, he's supporting like local <laughs> creatives and I, I really respect that. Yeah. It's pretty good. But anyway, he, uh, yeah, he realizes he's got to get home. He's only got like 11 minutes. He's got to get across the other side of the city. So he enlists the Gooseberry's help to send some messages, let the watch know this is happening and completely abuses police time and resources to stop traffic and commandeer vehicles in order to get home in time to read to his son because he has, uh, what uh, I believe psychologists call unrelenting high self standards. Because he talks about how he cannot have any excuses. He must be home at six to do this because if he allows a good excuse, he opens the door to bad excuses. And if you are one minute late, then you can be five minutes late. And then who knows? You could be half an hour late or just never come home at all. See, that, that worries me that you said that. So things I'm like, no, when I read that in the book, it's like, yeah, I understand that. That's, that's very rational and reasonable. <laughs> if you, if you basically, you put a crack in the dam, the dam's going to break. So there you go. Yeah. I read it not to. Th- yeah, I read it as like he's a recovering addict as well, and like mm, this is like you know there's always the stuff of like vibes of like this is your actual shot to not screw up the life that was almost entirely screwed up, and yeah, I I don't mind his in very very over the top commitment to um to this getting home to read. Yeah, I mean, and we do find out that it partially comes from a place of fear. Like, there's a whole passage where. He talks about how his son was born and he was just a little baby and he didn't really do anything and that was fine. And then one day he looked at him and seemed to understand that this is my dad. And at that point, everything changed for him. But he describes it as a moment where he is filled with fear that all of the good fortune and good stuff that's happened to him could all be taken away, that something awful is going to happen. He feels like it's going to happen. And it even it's like he feels it like a pressure, like there's a wave about to break. And I'm like, yeah, this is a guy on the edge. Like, he should not be in charge of a police department. <laughs> like, that is, ooh. But I also felt it very, I'm like, yeah, I've been there. Yeah. Is is Vimes your number one recommendation to get a mental health plan in the Discworld books? I think so. I mean, like, as you pointed out, he is a recovering addict. Like, he was an alcoholic. And I think he's got some very maladaptive coping mechanisms that he could use a lot of help with. But he's also the kind of character who's never going to go see a psychologist in a million years. Men will literally solve ancient racial tensions, (laughs) then go to therapy. Yeah. Men will literally time travel and teach themselves everything that they already know rather than go (laughs) to therapy. Rather than go to therapy. (laughs) Oh, it's too real. It's too real. Now, I'm being probably a bit too harsh on Vimes, but the other thing I just want to reflect on about the whole six o'clock reading to young Sam thing is that that's his one thing. He doesn't have the same amount of discipline and I will not sacrifice my personal life for my work with anything else. Like he's constantly letting Sybil down and not showing, like in the earlier books, he's often not coming home for dinner at all. In this book, he's constantly missing the one thing that she wants him to do, which is to sit for a portrait with the family and making excuses and it's somehow okay. And the moment where he does do what she wants and sort of quote unquote gives in to her, we'll get to that when it happens later in the book, but it's not played great. And I, there's a little bit of an edge there that I'm like, oh, not. 
I sound like I'm complaining a lot. I, I think I really love this book, but there are just some things, like you were saying, Matt, that I just, I'm like, oh, this rubs me a little bit the wrong way. It, it's tricky because I agree. Like he, I haven't read that Love Languages book or whatnot. Oh, but, don't. Um, and he's letting down Sybil in lots of ways, but I think his love for her comes through very, like they understand each other. Like I think she knew what she was getting into. It doesn't make it okay. The line that rubbed me the wrong way was like, oh, you know, when he was a really little baby and he was all floppy and the domain of his mother. I'm like, excuse me, you made that. Um, it's still yours. Yeah. But there's that other line where she darns his socks and he says, oh, like, we could have bought new socks every day for the rest of our lives with all the money we have, but she decided it was a wifely duty to darn his socks. And she does it terribly. Like, she's terrible at darning socks. She makes them really uncomfortable. There's a mishmash of fabric everywhere, but he wears them because she she darns them for him. And I sort of think, like, he shows his affection in other ways. Like, he would be uncomfortable all day in socks that he hates rather than tell her that he doesn't like the way she does it. So he's not perfect. Um, there's a lot of things to change, but I, <laughs> I think that their relationship is not perfect. And she also has a, quite a few things like that she she should have another look at. But, yeah, I think it's there's good stuff there as well. I think it's so interesting as you get into these later books and uh, you two in an episode recently speaking about, like, Granny Weatherwax and whether she's you know, a likable character or not. And it is this, it's not quite like a sitcom problem. You know, he's, Terry Pratchett's not resetting the episode, like the status quo at the beginning of each episode and moving on from there. But we don't, we want Vimes to kind of be, you know, a slightly Bruce Willis, Clint Eastwood flying off the handle character. And we want Granny Weatherwax to ain't putting up with none of this type of thing and, you know, do the equivalent of kicking down the door with her boots. And when we have the first three versions of those, we're like, love it. And then when we get to the seventh one, we're like, this is a lot. And, um, mm. you've, yeah, you've, healthy. you've built these characters that we really in, are in love with, that we really care for and that we have like spent all this time with. And it's a tricky one where I guess part of me wants even for the fictional characters to have that kind of narrative of growth. And it, and this one is a real like st- stalled. For, for Sam Vimes, like he's he's stuck in a spot, and I want to I want him to pop out like a cork by the end of it, um, mm. or like a person coming out of a pressurized um, underground water chute. <laughs> yeah, uh, but he doesn't it's quite get there emotionally. Fine. Yeah, mm. yeah. For me, and I don't know if I've said this on the podcast before. I've certainly talked about it elsewhere, but it's a bit like in Star Trek. The thing that always makes it feel dated is never the technology; it's always the social stuff. You know, it's always the fact that, you know, you look at Star Trek The Next Generation, which seems so forward thinking and progressive in a lot of ways. But then, you know, everybody's heterosexual and most of the cast are white. There's only a few non-white people in it. And, and you know, all that kind of stuff. When we look at it now, and that's supposed to be the future. And I know it was made at a time when those things were not things that people felt they could get on TV. But it's what makes it feel dated now. And I think reading this book... It feels more progressive in its politics and its outlook in a lot of ways, but the things that haven't changed from the earlier books feel more dated because of those other things that have moved on. So now we have this sort of deeper look at the politics and racial tensions and cultural issues, but then we still have Sam Vimes and Sybil's relationship, which is such a old school traditional idea of what marriage is. And there's not as many jokes about 
it's where two people swear the other one is the only one who snores or, you know, um, you don't listen to the other person. You just uh, sort of make noises to make it sound like you are. Like, there's not those kind of jokes, but there are other things that keep it in that same kind of place, I think. Hmm. Yeah, I agree. Well, he gets home, he reads the book this first time, and we get treated to uh, not only the actual version of the book, which uh, t- for the purpose of this podcast, we'll describe very quickly. It's just like, oh, I'm looking for my cow. Is that my cow? No, it makes this other animal noise. It's not a cow at all. We also get treated very briefly to Vimes's altered version, which he sort of tries on for size of what he thinks is more appropriate for a city kid, where he's like tracking down criminals and they're making different noises, including, uh, oh, is, is this the criminal I'm looking for? No, it goes Bugret Millennium Hand and Shrimp. It's foul all wrong. Confusion. Yeah. Of like, yeah. Um, so that, that was fun. Um, but he, he does that. He collapses. He goes to sleep, basically. I thought this was, like, really fun if you've ever read the same book to a child, uh, like, seven times <laughs> yeah. in the same sitting, which I absolutely have done, and you really go, like, <laughs> I've look, I'm a creative as well. I need to express myself. Um, can I just finesse this in a few different ways? I'm not saying it's better than the original, but I just I have to do it for my own sanity and yeah. the, the tantrum that faces you if you try and vary from the text. Yeah, because yeah, they to- know, Toddlers they? are traditionalists, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> they're like, they're the grags, uh, they're the even shorter grags. Um, <laughs> anyway, he, he, Sybil lets him fall asleep because he's clearly had a rough day. And, uh, when he wakes up, Carrot has arrived to report on what's happened when he and Angua and Sally have investigated in the mine. They have been shown what is supposedly the murder scene, but they pretty quickly determined this is not the murder scene. This dwarf was killed somewhere else, then brought here, and someone bashed his head with this troll club, which is here. But he was already dead. But the really weird thing is that, you know, it's all looking like it's clearly a setup. And then Angua and Carrot find evidence that there really was a troll there. And this really freaks out Ardent, who seems totally taken by surprise. And as they're trying to investigate, there's part of the mine that they're not allowed to go in. And the dwarfs turn up and they have these fire wands and they sort of cleanse the whole thing with fire, which seems a bit over the top but they don't get too far in their investigation. A lot of the stuff in the dwarf mine, I really enjoy this because you you don't often, like while Carrot does interface with dwarfs, you don't often get to see him get to sort of explore and explain some of the dwarf stuff. And in this, there's lots of cool little things like the mine signs that we learn about for the first time, um, which are sort of like, they're like sort of rune symbols. They're circles with different sorts of lines through them, including the one that just means mine, which is probably my favourite um, the uh, the long dark, which is just, if you didn't pick this up, the symbol of the London Underground. It's a subtle gag. They never really explain it, but it's there. They're really great. And I also really love the verms. Oh, as, like, yeah, the I, verms. I think that is just a fantastic thing of these gross little maggoty creatures which are attracted to blood and also glow in the dark. And the, the combination of their practicality and their grossness uh, and the way that you would have to negotiate that all the time, a perfect invention. They're beautiful, disgusting. Like it's, it's, you know, such yeah. a good horror movie thing too. Like I can imagine like a horror story set in like the dwarf mines and then there's sort of the creeping glow of the verms coming to get you. Like, yeah. It's not the most horror sort of Pratchett since moving pictures. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. There's a lot of hor- horrifying stuff in this, but it's more, it's more yeah. thriller horrifying rather than the sort of eldritch horror of, of moving pictures, which is obviously much more Lovecrafty sort of inspiration. Mm. But because we've covered the bit where he injures his hand on the thing, I think we can talk about the fact that he injures his hand and that, like, 
allows the thing to like move into his body and become one with him. So like that's mm. kind of it's real Stephen Kingy, like down in the mines and things are going weird and there's a murder and like there's like all of this stuff, like these tensions. Like it's not Lovecraftian horror, um, like like you were saying, mm. but it is. Yeah, and it, not exactly Stephen King, but yeah, it's kind of well. Like, well, yeah. you say that, Liz, but actually, I saw a reference online that Stephen King did write two different books that feature an entity called Tack, spelled the same way, T A K, which enters someone and is kind of like a spirit of retribution or rage. And one of the people it enters in one of the books is a police officer. Apparently, there's, that's as far as it goes. Like those sort of broad, sort of high level similarities, but still, full on. Yeah, I watched, there was a, like a HBO miniseries out a couple of years ago with Ben Mendelsohn in it, which was the same plot as that. You got scratched by this thing and you got infected with it and then became, you were like a killer who also morphed into things. I don't know. It was very uh, Stephen Kingy where the top, the top concept is great. And then the details are sound ridiculous the way you try to describe them. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's- then the, the car ate a person, I guess. Yeah. It did. <laughs> Wait, what? You didn't mention a car. <laughs> Sorry, I, I switched. I switched books very quickly. Okay. Yeah, there is something there about that. I think you're right in that it's not just a thriller. There is this extra kind of more modern horror kind of aspect to it. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like if Stephen King like rewrote the Da Vinci Code <laughs> with with another like sort of you know like with a another layer on element top. on top of it. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. there's something yeah. in that cryptex, and it bites you. <laughs> oh. Um, well, look, and yeah, you're right about, we, we sort of touched on this, Liz, you mentioned this, this sort of sex in the city thing that's going on where Angua, because Sally's a vampire and there's a whole thing with werewolves and vampires, Angua's talked about this before, she doesn't like to be around vampires because they smell awful to a werewolf nose and it's this sort of this instinctual hatred there and she's really struggling with those feelings as well as feelings of jealousy. Like she thinks like she's eyeing up Carrot. I think there's a little embarrassment in there as well because she feels like werewolves are seen by other people as this sort of inferior form of undead because that's how they're classified in the Discworld for some reason where, you know, Sally's all charming and and cool and sophisticated and sexy and she's like got an inner dog that means she basically wags her tail anytime Carrot says, oh, well done, which is, you know, a weird aspect of the werewolf thing that Pratchett keeps bringing in that it's not just the wolf, it's also this inner dog and he brings that into their relationship in sometimes a cute way and sometimes they're like, this doesn't feel good kind of way. There's a lot of relatable stuff in their, in their combative relationship. I found myself looking at it, I'm like, yeah, I do feel like that around some other women specifically, like that thing where you just, you're happily moving through your life and then there's someone who is like more fashionable or like able to like just seamlessly be and you're like, oh, when did I last have a shower? Is my hair like looking terrible? Um, why don't I manage to wear nail polish properly? There's that. But there's also that, that false binary between the tomboy and the sophisticate that I also don't think is necessarily real. But it's also like a simplification that works because there's still stuff that's there that you can relate to. But I like that they didn't just stay like that the whole time. It was moved into this other sort of storyline. So, mm. yeah. I really like looking at it where Angua is, if you go all the way back to Men at Arms, she's kind of presented as like the very modern woman. Mm. She's kind of got it all together. She doesn't have the prejudices that other people have. She's really happy to like hang out with Detritus and Cuddy and kick it with the boys where necessary and, and put up with everything. And then exactly Sally enters the scene and I think makes it like, yeah, like look at her relationship and go like, oh, wait, I'm actually like super traditional in certain ways. And I don't 
happily talk about like finding people sexy. I'm quite buttoned down in a, in a way which I just did not perceive myself to be until the other type of person or someone with a slightly different spectrum pops up and highlights that for me. Mm. Mm. That makes a lot of yeah. sense. And I mean, you see it also in the earlier book, Feet of Clay, when Cheery joins the watch and suddenly Angus got sort of someone to say, yeah, look, you know, it's all fine, but you know, you do have to be one of the boys in order to get along here. And that is kind of shitty. And now I've got someone I can commiserate about that with, but also who is prejudiced against werewolves. So now I have to deal with that. Whereas everyone else doesn't really care or doesn't know. Yeah. Each time new people come in, we do get to see a lot of sort of different notes of Angua, even if they're all kind of playing the same chord a bit, because they're all about the sort of werewolf thing. Yeah, it's like a consistent in, like um, level of insecurity for somebody who is hugely smart, very intelligent, and has superpowers. She's very secure in the world that she's built for herself, and that's why I think she has a lot of walls. And when someone comes sort of barreling through them, it messes with the stability of her safe world that she's created. And then she gets dumped in the entirely unsafe world of strip clubs and novelty cocktails, which which we <laughs> spend some time in. <laughs> I don't feel like we necessarily need it for the storyline, but I I very much enjoyed every time we were taken there. Yeah. I didn't feel like it outstayed its welcome, but I, I was, every time we went back, I was like, oh, how much of this is there going to be? And then when it got to the end, I was like, oh, this is fine. Oh, that was that was just enough. When's it going to tie back in? When's it going to? Yeah, okay. it doesn't really. <laughs> it's, it's, it's all about the weird subplot of the relationship between Nobby and Tawny, the pole dancer who is repeatedly described as the most beautiful, sexy woman who's ever existed on the face of the earth. And then Nobby, who we are reminded in this book, as in so many books, has to carry around a card with him to prove that he is a human being, which is a weird joke now that I say it out loud. Like, it always seems funny when you read it, but then you're like, mm, don't think about that one too much. Um, <laughs> but maybe it's a show like four different species getting along nicely in the backdrop of this whole thing that's about species not getting along, maybe. Or maybe it's just fun. I love that, Liz. I love And then that almost, there's bits that clunk for me, which was like, oh, two female characters are arguing over one man. And, um, oh, you found a reason to cover them in mud so they had to take their clothes off and dress up as um, sex workers or strippers. Uh all of which is so not Pratchett for me that it's like, yeah. oh, we had, to, we had to get a scene in for the movie adaptation where the hot girls take their clothes off. But I, the idea that putting aside centuries-old rivalries between species and sitting down and hashing out your ideas and doing it over some silly drinks is a great alternate to what happens in other aspects of the book. I hadn't thought of that at all. Because it can't be coincidence that they're all different ones. They get cheery. It's just, it's just yeah. Yeah, we'll get back to that storyline in a minute. News of the death of Ham Crusher gets out and also news that the dwarfs are blaming it on a troll or that they believe a troll has done it, whereas the trolls are pretty sure a troll didn't do it because they would know who it was if they did. This sort of simmers up where there's like a gang of trolls, a big gang of dwarfs, and they're going to have a fight. And Vimes has got everybody on full alert. They've got to get in between these two groups and make sure they don't fight because it's going to get bad. They employ all the tricks, including signing up all of the special constables who are regular members of the public who are called upon to join up when the need arises. Did you have a favourite among them? I mean, Hancock is the one that kind of stands out because he has something else to do in the plot. The others are sort of just there for gags. But did you have any favourites among the special constables? 
I've forgotten his name, but the one who's there to write really irritating comments and survey the watch, like who, who, oh yeah, he's like really buttoned down, and then he like real like just here in the reports afterwards, like really lets out his inner beast in all of this, and just sort of like he won't be put back in his box afterwards. I love that. Yeah. So is this the character of Pezimal that we're talking about? Yeah, A. E. Pezimal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was about to get to him. I was thinking of the other special constables, but I agree, Liz. He's he's fun. He's a really interesting character. He kind of feels a little bit like the kind of bookkeeper who shows up in The Fifth Elephant again, which is, you know, Vimes having to deal with a person who, I don't know, reads and looks at numbers. And, yeah. you know, Vimes is like, I don't understand you unless you spend all your time standing in the rain <laughs> swearing. But this kind of person who shows up and is like, oh, maybe we could have a little bit of oversight into the watch. It seems to be doing things in a way which is not, excellent and we, i think we all have this feeling at this point where we're like yeah there's some stuff about the watch which uh, maybe maybe you could rein some of this in and yeah. then this little character it, like finds his inner vimes almost and um exactly like you say liz bursts out and becomes a a small berserker warrior yeah yeah, yeah. because he's been appointed by the patrician to do this sort of audit basically of the watch and he has all these questions. He's not an auditor. He's not an auditor. No, not in the Pratchett sense. He's actually from another story. He appears in A Collegiate Casting Out of Devilish Devices, which is um, a short story about Pesimal being sent to um, do a huh. similar inspection of the university, which is set before this, which we will get to at some point on the podcast, I'm sure. But because he's asking these questions and Vimes doesn't want to deal with him, he kind of quite meanly makes him be a special constable and puts on some armor. He's like, you can't really understand what's going on in the watch unless you actually do the job. It seems really mean. And then you get the impression that Vimes was just going to just scare him a bit. But then Pessimal's like, no, I'm doing it. <laughs> like, I'm doing it. You can't stop me. And he gets right into it. And when they're on the bridge, Vimes employs the trick where he he doses up the beers that the dwarfs and the trolls are drinking so that they get really drunk and most of them fall asleep so they don't fight. But a couple of them do get through, including one particular troll who's quite important to the plot, whose name is Brick, who, even though he is really drunk, he manages to burst through and attack the assembled watch officers and Pessimal just throws himself at him and tries to bite him and gets kicked across the square. And he, he's okay, but, yeah, he's really got that berserker thing. And Vimes, like, gets his ribs broken by this troll before Detritus can kind of lay him out flat. Yeah, it's a whole thing. And that sort of bricks, well, not his first big moment, because we've had these sort of flashes of him wandering through the city. And I th if you're following, I think it's pretty clear he is the troll who was in the Deep Downer's Mines and kind of revealed that he saw a dwarf kill another dwarf. And after he gets arrested following this fracas, he gets let out with a caution. All right, William Edward. He goes, uh, <laughs> thanks. He goes to the only person he thinks can help him, the mysterious Mr. Shine, who then brings him back to the watch house. And Mr. Shine mysteriously says, take care of this troll. He'll tell you some important stuff. I'm going to magically disappear and disappears in a flash of light, <laughs> which I thought was really weird. But then I loved it. There's not been a lot of really weird stuff in this book, and now this is really weird, and I kind of want to know where it's going. I also just love that they straight up tell us at the beginning, like, his secret. Like, it's it's literally plastered up on the walls, and we hear it a bunch before we meet him. And I was like, oh, yeah, well, he's a diamond. He is a troll. He is made of diamond. He is a diamond troll, because it says Mr. Shine, he diamond. But we don't, like, get revealed that until, like, halfway through the book, and it's amazing. 
Secret kings everywhere. In your editions of the book, does it have the illustration of the graffiti where it says Mr. Shine, him diamond? Yeah. I'll describe it. It's halfway between like a traditional 90s graffiti tag and the font that the Flintstones uses. Yes. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, And it's troll graffiti, so it's not in paint. They just stick their finger in the wall and carve it into the bricks. Um, A brick, by the way, we should say is called brick because he looks like he's made of bricks, but- He's not actually brick. This is an important point that comes up later on, is that trolls are made of uh, metamorphological rock. So it's like they're they're morphological rock, like actual rocks, but they're also metaphorical rocks. Uh, it was great portmanteau there. Quite hard to say, but it's a great one. And so they, they're made of troll stuff, whatever that is, which is some sort of rocky substance, and their brains have, are made of silicon, but they seem to take on the appearance and properties of the rocks where they are born. Uh, and so Brick, born in the city, looks like he's made of, of bricks and is quite hard to spot if he's standing against a wall, which I thought was mm-hmm. nice. Is Brick like our first first-generation city dwarf? Is everyone else... Yeah, I, I think they're sort of mentioned, but I don't think we meet any before this book. Like, it's sort of implied that some of Chrysoprase's, like, thugs, the younger ones who, what do they call it, clang? They're wearing, like, the troll equivalent of, like, I'm wearing this to make me look hard, and they're, like, growing lichen on themselves, and they've got, like, skulls hanging off their belts. But they're sheep skulls or fake skulls, because if they had real human skulls, they'd get arrested. Yep. It's kind of implied those younger trolls maybe are city trolls who are trying to look tough and don't really know what the score is. But, yeah, I think he's the first one we probably meet for sure. Incepting the wire earlier has really impacted my imagining of that scene you just described. So So when I was reading this, I was watching the TV show We Own This City, which is a David Simon production and kind of like the spiritual sequel to The Wire. It's going back to Baltimore and looking at, like it's a true story of how like police overreach has completely corrupted a city. And I think a lot of the questions that I have about the way that police act in this book and the way that race relations are depicted is very much because of that kind of crossover frame of mind that I was in, which I guess is a caveat and an explanation, but also an interesting counterpoint of like, what is it to tell a police story now versus in 2005? Because mm. mm, a lot has happened that has affected our perception of that in the meantime, or at least brought things to our attention that probably we should have been paying attention to all along. And it is it is different to go back to this story now than to read it in 2005, for sure. I should say, we've, I've skipped over the bit that we kind of alluded to, which is that Angua and Sally go off investigating because they're sort of forced out of the mine when the dwarfs, like, torch the place. Angua goes out sniffing for clues to try and find the trail of the troll that clearly was in the mine to find out what was going on there. Um, and she's sniffing around and she finds this abandoned well, which she goes down and realizes there's dead dwarfs down there. And when she gets near finding them, she finds that Sally is also on the case and has found the same trail of clues or a similar one that has led her to the same place. And they discover that there are four dead dwarfs in this particular branch of the Treacle Street mines under this disused well. Three of them have died in the tunnel. There's like a weird ear trumpet thing as if they were listening for something. And one of them is back at the door that leads into this tunnel. But the mud is all gross and rising up and they have to try and fight their way out, which is when they end up in the nude. Horror. Real horror. It is, it is horrifying stuff. It reminded me of, um, I don't go into horror films very much. There's this really pretty intense one where this group of women go caving and they get stuck in the caves. The Descent. 
Yeah, and I, it made me think a bit of that because I haven't seen a lot of horror films set underground, but that one is, yeah, it's pretty full on. Anyway, yeah, they managed to get out. Brick is arrested, let go, comes back because he is a witness. He did see a dwarf kill another dwarf, but he doesn't necessarily know that much more that's useful. And Vimes is not really convinced anyone's going to trust him because he's clearly an addict. He's been on all of the different troll drugs that exist, but Detritus thinks he can save him. And Mr. Shine also leaves behind this geode, like a stone egg. And while they're talking about the fate of Brick, it gets smashed open and there's a note summoning Vimes to go and see Mr. Shine at a particular address. I really like that scene because Detritus really sticks it to Vimes. He stands up for the trolls. He goes, you never think about or show the same respect to trolls and troll culture that you do to dwarfs. You treat us like a bit of a joke and it's not really okay. And I loved that because there's not a lot of moments where Vimes gets called out in this book. And to see Detritus be the one doing it, I thought was beautiful. Yeah, that read for me like a really great... It's someone asking Terry at some point, hey, you've done all of this stuff about dwarves and like trolls are still just these big rocks and um, a little bit of self-reflection coming through that in a way which is so great for that character to like stand up for himself in that kind of position. Because even in the way that Vimes loves having Detritus on the watch, but often it is as a weapon. It's because he has the giant peacemaker up his sleeve. And there's those moments whenever Detritus is in the cold and, like, it clicks. I love that. There's that scene in Jingo I think about all the time when they're in the desert and all of a sudden he realises, like, oh, yeah, he's, like, six times smarter. And actually he's always this smart. He's just slower. Yeah, it's great to see him kind of snap in that way. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, it's not really the sort of thing that, Pratchett does often, but I I admit that I also did feel a little bit of disappointment that in a story that was so much about the tensions between dwarfs and trolls, that also revisits a couple of important places, and especially the Pork Futures warehouse where the meeting with Chrysoprase happens. I just wanted there to be a little nod where Detritus says something about Cuddy or they remember him because I love that friendship so much. And there's one little reference to it. It's in Jingo because he's got the helmet on with the mm-hmm. fan and it gets seized up with sand and stops working. And it's quite sad because he says something like, my friend made this for me. And that's that's it. That's the only time. And I feel like this is a moment where, you know, the first troll and the first dwarf in the watch were friends and then one of them died. And now all this stuff is coming to a head. It just feels like it should have been in there somewhere i mean i understand why he wouldn't have done it he doesn't want to alienate an audience who maybe hasn't read that book for you know 10 years by the time this book comes out but still i I just yeah i would have loved to see it no i agree and i i totally realized how much tv has eroded my brain because i was like oh it's because they they'd have to pay the actor for his um you know his like i'm like wait no this this is this is a book it's okay you can just mention whoever you want you can invent people you can bring them back all the time there's no casting budget you can have as many characters as you want yeah I think it's so interesting that we get, like, Brick's internal narrative. I'm always really interested mm. in, like, which characters Pratchett gives us interiority for. And in Watch books, it's basically Vimes. We're, like, so deep inside Vimes. We know what Vimes is thinking before Vimes knows it, basically. Mm, yeah. And then we kind of get Angua. We get, like, in with her thoughts as she's thinking them. Mm. And that's almost it. We can follow along with, say, like, what is Fred doing at the moment? And we get a little bit of insight into him, but it's kind of these like different strata levels of interiority. And, you know, he does yeah. that with the witch's books as well, where, you know, we can be deep in granny 
basically know what Nanny's doing. We kind of watch Magrat walk around. Mm. And in this book, and maybe, sorry to keep harking back to Fifth Elephant, but they are like books that live together so much. Yeah. It's so interesting where you're like, why can't we be in Cheery's head for half of this? Why can't this yeah. be a book where we're in Detris's head? And then the choice of having Brick, who has this kind of garbled, drug-addled excerpt from an Irvine Welsh-type um, <laughs> novel. Yeah. I, I think it's just really interesting choices. Um, and, you know, I'm not going to mm. advocate to rewrite the book based on my own personal preferences, <laughs> but it did make me just go, you know, who and when do we go inside? We don't go inside Carrot because I think he's meant to always be, like, impenetrable oh, yeah. and mysterious. You know, if we went inside, mm. we would find out that he was the real king or something. Like, he is meant to be simple yeah. to the point impenetrable so yeah well there's yeah there's that essential question about him that gets brought up and it's only in this book a little bit but there is always that question about how much does he really understand what he's doing how much of his usual persona is a bit of an act or how much does the steel come out just Mm. when it's needed or is it always there and he's hiding it most of the time and we don't want to know that (laughs) like it's part of his character that that's a question we will never have answered yeah, but I guess there's not that same character trait or, or need for mystery around a couple of these others. And it'd be just, yeah, you know, I'd, I'd love to have Cheery's perspective in different books. Yeah. Like, she's such a great character. Yeah. She's so interesting. She has so much internal conflict with what's going on with her own background. And then she's like a triple fish out of water. And we don't get any of that in this book. I mean, like, we we might as well talk about this now because I don't think we're going to get too much deeper into the whole Girls' yeah. Night Out storyline. But yeah. this is another thing where I thought there are a few things that got set up in this book that don't go anywhere. Like, one was in the first scene where Vimes is reading the book to young Sam, they mentioned Dribble, the swamp dragon, who sleeps under his bed the whole time. And I'm like, oh, they're setting that up. So when the dwarfs come later- the dragon or no, he's never mentioned again. A classic dribbling dragon. Um, <laughs> I've never read Chekhov, so I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like that, right? <laughs> I don't know that. I don't know that reference. What is that? If you introduce a dribbling dragon at the beginning of a book, um, you <laughs> oh, expect it to dribble. go off by the end. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going to dribble <laughs> on someone, you've got to have a dragon. Yeah, okay. I see what you're doing. I'm sorry to show you up as being not particularly well read, Ben. But no, yeah, that's, that's true. a classic. I'm, I'm culturally bereft. To me, this suggests that potentially there was like a hundred thousand more words of this book that just got well, yeah, annihilated. Because the other thing is that during the girls' night out, you get the kind of only moments of cheery character stuff happening, which is her kind of talking about how her life is a bit sad and she never gets to go out and she never has any romantic prospects and the way she reacts to when one of them orders the drink, which is called a screaming orgasm. And I just felt and then this- she later tries to order one, and that's like a little bit of an arc. I just had this feeling that it was setting her up that there was going to be some romance subplot and i haven't read this book for a long time so when they finally introduced bashful bashful son the sort of more progressive modern grag i was like are they gonna meet is this gonna be a thing they're gonna get together or is cheery gonna meet one of the other and like is he gonna turn out to be another girl dwarf is they gonna i don't know what's gonna but nothing happens again you know it felt like there was a setup with no payoff was that just me or i feel like maybe sometimes he sets up things not necessarily for the same book but i also feel like this is a book that probably was much longer and had lots of things excised from it like Mm. possibly an editor even was like let's get rid of the girls night out and no i don't know yeah the other thing is that it's you know you've built this like cast of characters and he's he's so prone to just adding more members to the watch in every book (laughs) uh in a great way 
But you get to the point where it's like, how do I pay a little bit of a nod to each of them? Even if we're like, Cheery fits into this plot so well, why why not use them a little bit more? But mm. you, I can only assume it's like, is Reg in this book? I can't remember. But no. No, it doesn't even get mentioned. So we love Reg. We love Buggy Squires. We love Constable Visit to a degree, maybe. Um, and you know, like how many, how many of these great? It's not your door. <laughs> how many of these great characters can we spend time with? And, yeah. and Cheery, Cheery maybe just kind of misses out. But like you say, Liz, you can't have a thousand more pages of this book. Yeah, I, I mean, I would read them, but <laughs> yeah, but you've committed to doing the podcast. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah. It's true. On the flip side, you know, it's something like, and this is probably spoilers for Downton Abbey, like. People love Downton Abbey. It finished. They keep making movies. But I don't think they can make any more movies because they've paired literally everyone off. There's no one left to marry off. <laughs> Which is kind of, yeah, what those kind of shows always rely on. There's got to be the... Which is not what this relies on, but yeah. 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 No. I think I just wanted to do a gripe about Downton Abbey and I've done that, so <laughs> well done me. Good, good work. All right, let's blitz through some plot because we can't spend this long on all of it. No, we can't. It's we can't. all very good. Uh, well, Vimes goes to the address given to him on the card from the geode. It's a mineral shop run by a woman who has two personalities, shades of the witch from that Tiffany Aching book, mm. interestingly, but only in one scene of this book. And a cool character. Good I liked her. She didn't have much to do and she was interesting and funny. It was great. Anyway, she shows Vimes into the back of the shop, which is like a little hall or meeting room that she rents out to Mr. Shine's Thud Academy. I think that's how they refer to it later on. A whole bunch of young dwarfs and trolls are playing the game Thud with each other. And Thud has been mentioned a few times during the book. Leonardo DiCaprio pointing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're not familiar with the game, we've just done a, a bonus episode. You can go and listen to uh, all about the board game, which existed in our real world before it was in the books. Basically a little bit like chess, more like Huffle Tuffle. It's a very old form of board game. Mr. Shine reveals himself to Vimes and says, yeah, I'm trying to teach these youngsters to understand each other better through the game. And it's slowly working. And secretly, I am a diamond troll, which means I'm always smart, no matter the weather, because I can reflect all of the heat away from my body with my diamond properties and I am the rightful king of all trolls. And he's like, well, why don't you just stop all the fighting? He's like, it doesn't really work that way. You've got to make them want it. <laughs> I really liked Mr. Shine. What do we think about him? He's great. Wanted more of him. You've pointed out that he's very much into change management, which I think for a king <laughs> in the Discworld books is novel and great. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Vimes kind of looks around and goes, this is his kids. Like, what is this going to do? And he's like, oh, you know, drops of water in the right place make a mountain or erode it away. And you're like, oh, it's a good metaphor. Like it also creates stalagmites. <laughs> yes. There's a lot of little bits of foreshadowing in this book. Absolutely. But he kind of spills the beans to Vimes. He tells him that the dwarfs were looking for something underground that talks, that it was going to reveal to them the secret of Coombe Valley, and that everyone was going to know the secret to Coombe Valley soon enough anyway. And uh, that that's also why the dwarfs in the mine were killed, because they heard whatever the voice was and whatever it had to say. Just tell him. He gives him a pretty big hint. I mean, there's a lot of detail that's not filled in, but he just gives him the sort of, as he puts it later, he's got the edge pieces of the jigsaw puzzle. <laughs> I, yeah, but he is kind of a little bit mysterious for mysterious sake, old Mr. Shine. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Although there's that whole sort of back and forth where he claims to be magic 
And Vimes is like, oh, well, then, you know, get stuffed. And he's like, no, I'm not magic. I'm just very smart, <laughs> which I was like, mm, and quite self-satisfied as well. But there is the discussion where he's like, look, I can tell you, but I know that you still have to go out and find the evidence yourself because that's the kind of person you are. That's the kind of thorough police work that you do is you don't just take somebody's word for it. You've got to find the evidence and you, you can't use magic and you're just going to do the thing. Isn't it also because he knows that, like, Vimes is infected? Do you think he does know? I kind of think maybe he does. So he's not fully trustworthy because he's like, oh, how's it going to pan out? Yeah. There's a couple of people who say things that suggest that maybe they kind of have an idea of what's going on. I mean, certainly I think Bashfulson has worked it out before most people. I can't remember if it's Mr. Shine or, or Bashfulson, but one of them warns Vimes that he might have to rein in his anger more than usual. Oh, you know mm-hmm. what's going on, don't you? I reckon the king knows, and that's possibly why he's mystery for mystery's sake, but it's also very annoying, but necessary for plot. He can't just be like, oh, yeah, here's the ending, and they're like, cool, we've worked it out, Um, book ends here. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> he does that interesting thing which the patrician does in lots of books, which is, like, kind of wind Vimes up and then, like, <laughs> let him, let him loose and go, like, <laughs> yeah. I don't quite know what this will do, but this problem needs, like, action into it, which is... Both funny from like a writer creating a character like Vimes, which is literally what happens to him every novel is he gets wound up and thrown into something. But like mm. that, that also you need people to do the same for him as the character to ensure that, you know, we get somewhere. Yeah. 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 I think it's in Men at Arms where he like worries he's pushed him too far because he's like left a dent in the wall where he's like thumped mm. it while he's listening to what the patrician's got to say. Yeah. Talk about the painting. We're actually getting quite near the end, I reckon. It seems like it. Right. I always say that and then it's like another hour. But let's, let's, <laughs> we'll get into it. I did notice, Liz, that you blah, blah, blah over the art gallery scene, which is the reason why I thought you yeah, had I wanted me to, on the I want to talk to you about, yeah. I wanted to, no, I didn't blah, blah, blah over it. I was trying to segue into it and then we segue it away. So I'd actually like to jump back to it and be like, well, what did you think? On, only that. Okay, only that it's interesting to have an art gallery which contains obviously these like very historical pieces and then a nod towards Tracy Emin. And I was like, wow, <laughs> did he predict uh, the new Sydney modern or something? Yeah. <laughs> it was great. I, he doesn't d- like what did you think of the dig later on where Sir Reynold, we haven't even mentioned, but the guy who runs the museum who talks in the very, uh, you know, the, 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 it's been still like the way he speaks is extraordinary fun to, to say. If you try and replicate the like phonetics of it, I think you will dislocate your septum. Like it's that much of a strain. <laughs> yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll do yourself a class injury, I feel. But yeah, there's a bit later on where they're talking about the way the rascal painting was going to be displayed and whether or not people could have touched it or whatever. And he says, Oh, yes, like it's very interactive. And they're like, What do you mean? <laughs> and they have this whole like devastating takedown of this guy who thinks his museum is interactive when there is no inter, like it's just art on display. Like there's no things you. But part of me, like as someone who's done interactive design in spaces, was like, oh, but maybe it is. Like they could have, it could have been, you don't know. I mean, maybe they had, oh, yeah. I don't know. How did you feel about that bit? I'm fine with it. I think we, we, I guess occasionally we talk at work because I work in a contemporary art gallery about the fact that like no visit to a gallery is passive. So Mm. whilst there are lots of museums and different kinds of cultural entities that you can go to and you can stick your hands in a plastic box and touch a thing and, you know, jump up and down on a platform and pretend you're green screened into an earthquake or whatever. Um, the fact that you have decided to go to a space and engage with something in whatever form that it is, is active. And mm-hmm. then 
You can run through it with your eyes closed if you would like to, but by walking through it and seeing what is in there and thinking about it, you're, you're interacting, which is a very straightforward and kind of like nerdy galleries and museum response. I'm sorry, there's no gags from me in this instance. <laughs> That's all right. I, I mean, I agree. Yeah, and I like that there was actually, like, throughout the book, there's a commentary about art, like, that carried through a few of the different threads. Like, the whole thing, like, I, I made a facetious joke earlier about, like, the thing being Nobby's hot girlfriend or whatever, but I actually really liked the inclusion of her as a character because she challenged a lot of the other characters in lots of different ways. I didn't just sort of put her in as a two-dimensional joke, which would have been terrible. But one of the things that stuck with me was... um Fred was very like, well, you know, you can't go to these like nudie bars. That's, that's just sort of, it's not the classy thing to do or whatnot. And then he's talking about how Tawny talked about how what she did as art. And when they go to the gallery, he points out that so many more women on the walls are wearing less clothes than his girlfriend wears at her work. And Fred's like, and he's like, well, what's the difference? He's like, urns. There's more urns in these pictures and that they pick that up throughout as well like there's that chat about like how he's like she says what she does is art like her dancing's very good he's like well it's not the same as ballet and he couldn't quite put his finger on why ballet was art but what Nomi's girlfriend does isn't oh actually because it's expensive to look at ballet so there's just this commentary that comes again and again throughout that was clearly not just like a passing thought like it was actually something he wanted to discuss not necessarily as the primary thing but that comes through quite clearly for me and I really like that yeah I really like Fred in this book and sometimes Fred is uh infuriating uh I going back to that bit Ben right at the beginning about him interacting with the other like old men and kind of like it feels like Fred's like hit like a great spot where he <laughs> has a community <laughs> and and is able to like be a little bit reflective. Love it. Yeah. Love this for Fred Collin. Yeah. And there's also the nice thing where, you know, when they do meet Sir Reynold at the museum, Fred totally understands him. Like he can, he can understand his accent. He knows what he's about. He understands exactly the kind of person he is and the kind of situation he's walked into. And Nobby is still like, what's a burglaria? <laughs> like, <laughs> So he's been around, he's seen enough that even though he's still not, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer, to quote Vimes talking about himself, um, he's, he's still got a certain amount of experience behind him that means he, he knows a few things. And when he doesn't, I think, you know, it's very clear that he's the voice of the everyman that doesn't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> and in this book, it's a lot softer than in some of the previous ones where he said some much more horrible stuff. Whereas here, I don't know if this is where you were going, but I kind of, he, he feels like, He's not really convinced himself as he struggles to find answers to these objections that Nobby puts forward. He feels like, no, there must be a reason why it's not okay, but he's not finding the reason and that's making him a bit unsure about himself in a way that he's not in maybe some of the previous books. Mm. Yeah, I kind of liked that. But look, we're reaching sort of the action-packed bits of the book now because when Vimes goes home after visiting with Mr. Shine... Uh, his house is invaded by a bunch of deep down dwarves, most of whom are taken out and one of them killed by Willikens the butler, who is the battle butler, to use the the TV tropes term. He's very good at what he does. And what he does is fling knives. I signposted that very well. Oh, yeah, because he's got the Peaky Blinders thing going on at the start with the cap with the weighted sharpened pennies in it, talking about his youth in a street gang that was a rival to Vimes' street gang, which is a nice little detail about how that works out. They invade his house. They try and presumably kill him because they show up with their fire wands, but they fight them off. Willikins gets most of them. One of them gets into the house, gets into young Sam's room, 
but is scared off by the shape of the summoning dark, which has started showing up with more regularity by this point of the book, and then runs outside and gets incinerated by Sybil's dragons when he tries to burn her. But she's safe because she's wearing her dragon gear. (laughs) That's why you always have to wear PPE. Yeah, yeah. I found that sequence, like, even though it's like it's dwarfs with, like, you know, fire-spitting weird dwarf stuff, I still found it really, like, horrifying. Like, these guys coming into their house and trying to set them on fire. It's frightening. Yeah, I like that they sort of gave the butler and Vimes an out by saying, oh, well, they would have all died anyway because they all took slow-acting poison, so don't worry, you can kill as many of them as you want. They'd already, like, they were going to die anyway. Yeah, that was intense when you discover that's what happened. Um, and it's kind of a little throwaway line. Like, they, one of them, because he kills one of them, and then one of them dies with this sort of greenish stuff around their mouth. I don't really know what that's about. And you assume, like, he's killed himself with, like, a cyanide capsule or something equivalent. And then later on you find out, no, they all take this stuff before they go on the mission, so they're all definitely going to die anyway. And you're like, that is you feel messed a, up. You know, jail-free card for your butler to be doing a bunch of killings. Yeah. It's both that and it's like, like this book is like interested in extremism and it kind of is really disconcerting because the Discworld has rounded edges for most of its time. Like it can get into like knotty, weighty problems and kind of the disparities of the world and things that, you know, we that are real problems, but it's not. Um, this book has a rip from the headlines feel in, in, I think, both good ways and bad ways. Sometimes I'm like, oh, I wish you'd sat on this a little bit longer and, and had a bit more thinking about how it all fits together. Like, but you really, I guess, wanted to respond to ideas around extremism and religious fanaticism and this cool new show you watch called sex in the city uh but (laughs) but it does mean that it feels so more real world and you know like i don't think that the baby's gonna die because that's not in the rules of this but i certainly felt like it could yeah yeah or something bad like it could baby could be kidnapped yeah. yeah, that was that felt within the realms of it. Yeah, it certainly could have gone a lot further. Or, or they could have killed Willikins. Like, I think that was a character he could have got away with killing. When we had uh, Michael Williams from the Wheeler Centre on the show, he talked about the time he interviewed Pratchett, and they talked about him not really wanting to kill off characters. And he really only does kill off, I won't say too much, but, you know, there's a couple of big deaths. I mean, we've already covered one of them. Cuddy dies, and, you know, we've talked about um, the fate of Cohen the Barbarian, and they're very few and far between. Like, usually when a character dies, it's a character who's introduced in the book who is going to die. It's not someone that we've spent a lot of time with, like Teach in Interesting Times, you know. For someone who has death show up and a lot of people do die in his books, it's very rarely people that we know super well and really care about. I think he could have killed Sybil in this book, but he wouldn't. Mm. Yeah. That's so funny, Ben. I'd never thought about the fact that, like, literally death is in every book and how few people die. Like, how does he get so many cameos? There's two books that he's not in. Is it two? Yeah, there's two books that he's not in. He's not in the first Tiffany Aching book and he's not in Snuff. I might be, if I'm wrong about this, please don't write in not because in snuff, I will look it up. Hilarious. But I'm pretty sure he's not in Snuff. I don't think he turns up. Um, people, just- people always get this wrong, but he's actually also not in Reaper Man. That's true. There's this guy named Bill Dorr who's in it quite a lot. Uh, Read it carefully and we never mention death. That's true. Hmm? One one for the um, eagle-eyed spotters out there. Give it a reread. It's my tip. Oh, that's good. That's good. You heard it here first. That's a good tip. Yeah, I'm going to look at it after this. 
So after surviving this home invasion, Vimes decides they're all going to go and stay the night at Sidopolis Yard, the watch house, which, and this will become important to the plot, used to be one of Sybil's family houses that she donated to the watch at the end of Guards Guards to say thank you and to replace the watch house that was destroyed by the dragon. They go back there. They uh, hang out there. Carrot, meanwhile, has come back from the Deep Downer's mine because he's recovered the bodies of the three dwarfs that they could get out of the well. But to get the fourth one, they had to go into the mine through the front door. And the local dwarfs who now know that four of their local dwarf brothers have been killed by the Deep Downers are pissed off. And they're like, yes, get in there. We want justice for this. And they're starting to turn against the uh, old Grags. But it turns out they've all gone. They've left. And the only person left behind is Helm Clever the young daylight face guy, and they interview him in the cells, but not before a bunch of high up city dwarfs come to see Vimes kind of to apologize. He's really pissed with them. He's like, you come in to see me now? Like you couldn't have done something about this before. And he's really angry with them up until the point that one of them reveals that one of those dwarfs they killed, that was my son. And he didn't really have anything to do with the politics. He just wanted to get a pick in his hand and feel what it was like to be a real dwarf doing mining. And Vimes, like, there's a great description of how Vimes's like, whole demeanor just changes because he imagines, what if that was my son, you know? Like, it doesn't say that in as many words, but it's clearly what's going through his head. And he's like, shit, okay. And they introduce him to Bashful Bashful Son, the younger, more progressive Greg, who wants to help Vimes out. So he goes with Vimes. Helm Clever has not been talkative. He's really freaked out. He doesn't like the dark at the moment. But Vimes decides, if I play Thud with him, maybe that'll get him talking. Uh, he doesn't know how to play Thud, so he gets bashful to uh, teach him. And over the game of Thud, Helmclever basically spills out a lot of the plot. Not the final secret, but he reveals that the Grags came to Ankh-Morpork because they were trying to find the secret of Coombe Valley. He'd taken a copy of the Coombe Valley Codex with him when he went off to train with them. One of them had read it and gone, we need to go to the city. They want to see the painting and they want to look for something underground in Ankh-Morpork because they think they figured out what's going on. And in fact, they have. They found a cube, which is one of these ancient devices like the other ones we mentioned earlier, which can talk, which just, I mean, I hadn't seen many people talking about this online, but it's so similar to the thing, the cube computer that talks in the truckers' books. But it's this little tiny cube and it's basically a sound recorder. The ones who are looking for it, the dwarfs, um, they hear what it's got to say. And according to Helmclever, it speaks with the voice of Brian Bloodaxe, the original king of the dwarves back at the original Battle of Coombe Valley. But the Grags do not like what it says. They denounce it as lies. Hamcrusher tries to destroy it and has all of the dwarfs who heard it killed. That's why they were murdered. But one of the worst things you can do is destroy the written word or a record of any kind of words. And so while he's trying to destroy the cube in the darkness, the other Elder Grags struggle with him. One of them kills him, but they're not sure who it is because it was all in the dark. And um, they wear clothes that covers up their faces and you can't tell who's who. Uh, so that's how he died. And then they sort of very clumsily tried to pin it on a troll by asking Helm Clever to donate his troll club, which he got from playing Thud in Mr. Shine's Thud Academy. So he's revealed all this. Um, Vimes picks up that he said that they've also got the painting. He's like, what painting? And this is when he finds out that it's been stolen. And there's a recurring theme that he never reads his paperwork, doesn't do any of the stuff he's supposed to do as the head of the watch. And the gooseberry does help him out finding some stuff by digging through it. And eventually Pessimal gets a job where basically his job is to do all of Vimes' paperwork. So it works out very well for him. He gets to stay in the watch and still do all the paperwork stuff. But anyway, this reveals a lot of the story, but then also when Vimes is angry about not having been told about the painting being stolen, 
a couple of the candles that are lighting up the cell where Helm Clover is get knocked over and they go out. And in the darkness, he freaks out because he's scared because he's seen the summoning dark. He knows it's coming. It's a spirit of vengeance. We find out a little bit more about what its deal is. You only summon it in desperation with your last breath if you want revenge on the people who killed you. And that's what's happened. And he thinks it's coming for him because as well as not standing up against the Grags, he heard that last dwarf miner dying on the other side of a door, kind of like, you know, all those stories about submariners being drowned and did nothing. And so he thinks the dark is coming for him. And when the lights go out, he just dies of fright. Bashfulson has already said to Vimes, the summoning dark is here. It's happening. And it's going to be after these Grags. They're scared of it. They know it's following them. That's why they had all these candles around them when they were in the dark, when you went to see them. So it's all happening. And they're like, well, we need to solve the puzzle of Coombe Valley. We need to see the painting, but it's been stolen. The Grags got it. They took it with them. And that's when Sybil reveals that, you know, we didn't just used to own it. I made a copy of it when I was a schoolgirl as a school project. (laughs) I love this thread through Terry Pratchett's work where so often a school project is very important to the plot. But she's got this uh, reproduction of the painting. Now, I've just sort of covered a whole bunch of plot there. But to get to the end of this little branch of the plot so we can comment on it, they go upstairs at Pseudopolis Yard. They realize the copy of the painting's in the attic there. And they look at it. And Vimes eventually figures out that if you put it in a circle, then you can kind of, by looking at it, figure out where Rascal, the painter, was standing when he painted it. And that must be where you need to go to find the secret of Coombe Valley. And the reason that Mr. Shine said everyone was going to know the secret soon is because they were going to hang the painting up as intended in the round so that other people would have Well done, Gallery. Yeah. Which is a great- Look, I love that all those bits come together. And I think um, we, we've kind of glossed over a lot of the particulars, but I think Pratchett does a really good job of this mystery and building it as you go and it all making sense and coming together. I love the, uh, I guess it's an interrogation or just an interview scene um, over Thud. I think it's like mm. the tension of it and the way that the information is just kind of dribbled out bit by bit amongst that back and forth and dealing with a person who's like, you know, going through this traumatic episode at the same time is really masterful. And it, you know, it's an information scene, but it's one of my favorites in the book. Yeah, it's great. I also love the way that Vimes repeatedly through the book, anytime someone brings up Thud, talks about how he doesn't play games, he's never played Thud, he doesn't care for them. There's a footnote about how much he hates chess because it's all about sacrificing pawns. But in that moment when he's playing, even though he barely knows the rules, every time Helmclever gets a good move against him with a troll, he's like, where'd that troll come from? You just took three of my door. Like he's he's getting sucked into the game as well as everything else that's happening. I like that aspect of it too. It kind of is like... It is the first time that he's actually stopping and listening in the book. And it is by through this act of playing this game, which whether or not the real version of Thud would help ease tensions between warring parties, he's actually like doing the work of sitting there and listening and playing this thing and trying to be in a different perspective. And I think it's, it, I didn't feel hit over the head with a um, troll club in the, <laughs> the way that that scene plays out. No, absolutely. Uh, but this sort of sets up the need to go to Coombe Valley Bashfulson had previously said, when you go to Coombe Valley, please take me with you. Um, like, I'll tell all the dwarfs that you did the right thing. You didn't hurt Helm Clever. And I'll do that whatever you do, but please take me with you when you go. And he's like, I'm not going to go. And then when they find the painting, work it out. He's like, damn it, how did he know that? After he gets permission from the patrician to go, he also goes to see Mushroom Ridcully in a bit of a surprise move and says, look, we've got to get there really quickly. And I can't really be seen to be using magic, so I don't want to do anything too magical. But can you get me there faster? Um, and so they trick out a couple of his coaches with broomsticks and weird magical brass knob things, which I, now that I think about it, I don't think it is, but could it be 
a little nod to bed knobs and broomsticks? I'm not sure. Possibly. I think that was a popular film in the Pratchett household. Sure. Like, as we're all saying goodbye to Angela Lansbury at this time, uh, let's say that this is a bed knobs and broomsticks reference. Yeah. One thing I read was where is this set in kind of the chronology of the Discworld series? And there's like a reference to the cabbage stamp, which yeah. helped a reader place this as being about a month after going postal, which I think is interesting, but is really funny when you think of like just this couple of weeks in Rid Cully's life where people are like <laughs> knocking on his door and being like, hey, can you like help out with a thing? It's kind of magic. It's not magic. And he's like, yeah, 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 I got time for that. And <laughs> And the flip side of can you make this look magical and can you make this magical as well? Because it's a fake flying broom in the in Going Postal. Yeah, it's just like his downtime between stopping the world from ending or travelling through dimension or whatever or dealing with you know, whatever else Ridcully deals with. Just, just these two um, things of being a person in the city that people knock on the door of. I like it. It almost makes me wish there was... He's such a fun character in that space rather than yelling at the rest of the academy. Yeah, loved it. Yeah. Just a super cut of him having his door knocked on but and all like the other side of all of these books. <laughs> yeah. That would be great. Yeah, and I- it's, it's every character. It's like Dibbler's there, Gaspard's there, just, just like character after character. And he's like, yeah, 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 all right, all right. He never felt to Good me budget. more like Brian Blessed or Stephen Fry as Lord Melchett than he did in this book because it's a secret meeting in the like garden shed out the back of the university and then Bimes comes in and he says something like oh all this spy lark's quite good isn't it <laughs> I was like oh this is I love this so much it's so good he's just having a nice time yeah well I mean the wizards don't often get asked to do official magic stuff it's usually like someone official coming to them and going what have you blown up this time but this time it's like can you make my coach go faster and he's like I reckon we can do that. And the effect of it, I mean, it's very back to the future because at one point they're like, something happens when you go 13 miles an hour. Uh, and they don't say where we're going, we don't need roads, but they, they get pretty close because yeah, they, it makes them go at one point a hundred miles an hour in a horse carriage. Like it's intense. It felt a little bit like two things. It felt a little bit like, oh, uh, there hasn't been a lot of like cool magical fantasy stuff in this book. So here's a little bit of it, but also. You've got to have a chase scene or people have got to race across the country in these kind of books. And you can't really do that at 13 miles an hour in a coach um, to get to a place that's 500 miles away. It'll take weeks. We don't want to have a week's sort of gap in the story. So we've got to get you there really quick. It was fun. I loved it, though. You can do the George R. R. Martin thing where you just time means nothing and distances aren't anything. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of magical solutions because it's magic. So, yeah, no spoilers, but he could have made up anything. And yet it's so interesting and bizarre to choose to, like, invent, I don't know, like a rocket car. Yeah. Just so that your cast can sit there and half of them can throw up and the other half can be breezily <laughs> okay with it. Yeah, I loved how much Detritus liked it, and but Brick is, like, terrified because he's also never really been outside the city either. <laughs> I really like that when they go really fast, as has happened in a couple of other times when people go really fast in Pratchett books, there's the sort of red shift where it's like, you know, red in front of blue behind. But I was also reading that going, oh, so he's got police lights on his carriages now. <laughs> I thought you were going to reference the exploding cabbages, which I also like as a continual, um, any any fast moving through the Stolat planes. Yeah. That was pretty great. I could see that very clearly. There's a lot of really great, I mean, Pratchett's writing, as we've said so many times on the podcast, feels very cinematic. I think there's some, so many really great 
very visual, very cinematic sequences in this book. And yeah, driving down between all the exploding cabbages was definitely one. I mean, we all know the classic cinema scenes of exploding cabbages. So this is, yeah, hugely cinematic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Well, they get to Coombe Valley, uh, but they don't go straight to the valley. They stay with some friends of Sybil's. Bunty. Bunty and her husband is the local magistrate who are horribly racist about trolls, just casually. And Detris is like, whatever, it's fine, I'll sleep in the barn, which is, I guess, him sort of going, I know how it is out in these places. We we got a job to do. We can deal with this later. But it also felt a bit like, come on, man, you're better than this. You don't have to put up with this crap. But also he's picking his battles, you know, and it's it's hard. Like, look, you know, I'm a cis white man. What do I know about it? But it felt a bit like it was representing that you can't fight those things all the time. You'd be exhausted and you've got to go this one's not worth it. I'm just going to let it through to the keeper sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Or just kind of a reminder that the incidents aren't always huge things that drive the entire action of a, of a large novel. Sometimes they are just consistently there. Yeah. Mm. But the next day they go out into the valley looking for the spot. It's difficult. I mean, there's all these amazing, beautiful descriptions of the valley and how it's like this sort of weird rocky plain, but there's water that flows down it. There's all these waterfalls, but there's also all these sinkholes and water that goes underneath the ground and pops up in other places. And there's all these boulders that fall down. We actually got an email from a listener. This is from Graham Cave. I email. Thank you, Graham, for sending this in, saying that he thinks it's actually based on a real place in Australia and Mm. that- Pratchett may well have gone there because he'd been to Australia many times on holiday. The place is the Boulders at Babinda in North Queensland and a place called the Devil's Pool where people do go missing and get drowned and there's all these accidents with tourists going out there without guides and not taking care. Um, and it looks when he, and I did look up a couple of pictures. I'll, I'll link to the places that Graham sent in, in in his email. I think this is a real contender. I couldn't find any evidence for this. I'll, I'll have a bit more of a look and I'll put it in the episode notes if I find anything. But yeah, it sounds like this could well be the place if there was one. It's very specific and very evocative in ways which aren't, this is a jungle. This is a desert. This is a cabbage field. I can't almost think of like another like highly specific piece of maybe like, the fat pools or yeah, mm. I, I loved it. Rereading it. I, I knew that this was coming because I could picture it from the first time that I'd kind of conjured it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the rest of the watch who's with them kind of fall behind a little bit and he and Cheery find the spot and they know they're in the right spot because they find the abandoned painting that the dwarfs have left behind. The dwarfs have beaten them there and Vimes hears a little voice in his head and decides to go down the hole by himself rather than wait for everyone. And he ends up in an underground river. He almost gets smashed to a pulp, but something keeps him going. And he ends up on this hidden beach underground and makes his way after the tracks. And again, just at the right moment, the disorganizer, Gooseberry, crops up and says, it's almost six o'clock. And he realizes no way he's going to get home, but he's got to read the book anyway. And he just lets it out of himself. And it it describes him at at this point during the sequence as like his eyes are on fire and he's like blazing. And he screams the book with such fury that there's these scenes with Sybil back in the manor house where they're staying, where she just can't quite believe he's not going to be back for six o'clock. And it's really kind of heartbreaking and awful. And then she's trying to read the book to young Sam and he's not having it. But then somehow he hears his dad's voice reverberating through the caverns under the valley and knows that he's being read the book. And it's kind of heartwarming and 
full on because while he's reading the book, Vimes is also seeing all these visions of the animals from the book, but at the same time with sword and also an axe fighting off these dwarfs who are in this cavern that he finds, destroying stuff that they've found there. And he fights his way through them and he's got the grags at his mercy, but he stops. And it's at this point that there's been this series of little scenes of this creature inside a mind trying to influence it, but Mm. the mindscape is like a city and it can't quite get an angle, but it's trying every trick it knows and it's finally managed to get a bit of a wedge on this the person whose mind it's in. But now it's caught up with by something that's been chasing it and it's in Vimes's mind. This is the summoning dark and this figure steps out who calls itself the Watchman and says, no, you're not doing this. Get out of here. Get out of my city. And he says, I suppose you could call me the Guarding Dark. And this is clearly the bit of Vimes that he's referred to before, particularly in the previous book. Not so much in this one, although he does say he watches himself as well as the rest of the Watchmen. But this is clearly the bit of his mind that is always watching out for his anger and trying to make sure he never steps over the line. And yeah, it's it's pretty full on. Yeah, I, I think that kind of narrative, you know, the avenging spirit sort of voice like pops up in a few of his books. And I think it's an interesting kind of consistent idea that, whether it's temptation or whether it's, you know, like whatever it wants to be in that way that takes us to a place that we don't, our humanity doesn't want us to go. I think that idea that it is always back on the individual to stop themselves from doing things because it's a real Granny Weatherwax type of space as well, mm-hmm. especially if you like um, Carpe. Oh, Ben, you always pronounce it so nicely and it makes me feel like I don't know how to talk. Carpe Yogulum. Thank you. Um <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's like a consistent space that obviously Terry Pratchett's really interested in, especially in like his two major key figures that he keeps revisiting. I don't know. I I guess I do believe that it is a thing that we have to hold ourselves to task and that we have to be accountable to some inner space in ourselves. But it's just depicted as such like a very lonely way for two people who are so individualistic that they they don't ever give themselves to being with others in that kind of space? I I don't know. Maybe that's just my own therapy coming out in place of the therapy that Vimes needs, but I think it's an interesting one. He he doesn't have to fight this with only his internal voice. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting that the biggest battles happen in these characters' minds. The the thing that it reminded me the most of, and I don't know if it's just because I love Granny Weatherwax, but was with her battle with her sister, who is her twin, which is like, again, Twins are not the same person. I know that. There's two separate people who sometimes look very similar. But it's just interesting that there's that sort of theme of, you know, finding yourself. Again, I do not think a, not a twin is the same as you. Um, this goes out to my cousins who I, don't, I, I know you're two separate people. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. There is that. It's like this mind duality. It's, you know, that idea that Granny Weatherwax is, is it that she's facing the light and stepping backwards into the darkness or something and in here you know it's that you have to keep this thing on a leash and only let it out when it's necessary but but also restrain it on the leash it's this really uh, this idea that inside us is all our badness that we then need to use for the best possible result Mm. and i guess it's maybe acknowledging that there's that badness inside rather than refusing it Uh, yeah that you have to keep it under control hmm not necessarily badness. I think having read the recent biography of Pratchett, but also having seen this as commentary from people who knew him well, he was a very angry person. Like, he had a lot of anger about stuff. And I think there's a lot of him in Vimes. I, this is the impression I get that this is how he thought about it. I don't know that he ever wrote about this, but 
anger is fine, but you have to direct it towards the right things and the right people. You can't just let it out and get angry about anything, which when you read his biography is an interesting attitude for him to have for Vimes because he doesn't seem to necessarily have had that attitude always in his own life. Maybe he did, but he just didn't always have a lid on it, just as Vimes doesn't, just as all of us don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't get too deep into the, again, this is how I think version and not isn't necessarily how it is but like vimes is constantly struggling to be a better person in different ways throughout the whole series and there's that whole thing about what is self as well because on the inside there's a lot of stuff bubbling up trying to be dominant and argue is that you or is the you that comes out in the world that survives that battle is that you or is it all or like Cause it feels like there's an aspirational self and then there's like a bigger self that you're like, oh no, I should, these bits aren't appropriate. These bits aren't quite right. And so like, they're all not the same thing, but they are. And only one version of it comes out. So to me, and again, maybe reading too much into that, it feels a little bit like trying to represent that, but with bigger themes, like you've got the summoning, summoning dark. Yes, it comes from an external place in this book, but what's it saying about character or about people in general and about what's truly you? Like I love that because I think, yeah, yeah, like this, okay, like the watch books for me are always the first couple are about like what is it to be a policeman or a police person and then there's a few about like what is it to be a citizen in a city and then there's kind of like what is it to be a man or a human and then night watch is very how do we work out how what shapes us as the people that we are? Is that set in stone or could we become something different? And in this... You know, we made those jokes about Vimes going to therapy, but this actually is like, what if you've worked out that stuff? I know how to be a good cop and I know how to be a person in this city and I've built like a life for myself and I still have this like, I should have solved it, but I have this darkness inside me which keeps bubbling up in ways which I don't actually like and are kind of antithetical to the morals that I say that I live by. And I don't know if the story helps resolve that in a conclusive way or a way that we can take a lesson from. And that's okay because it doesn't have to teach a lesson to be a book. Mm. But I do think that at that point in it, it, he doesn't quite solve the problem by using his rage. It's just that the rage is mm. there and it is the worst of him. And it is part of why, like we've said, that he's not the Vimes that we want to spend time with in this book in the same way. I think that's really interesting that you can't just say a character has rage all the time and then keep it on a leash and that's cool. It's actually like, no, there's something to be dealt with and worked through in that. And maybe because therapists don't exist in the the disc world, you have to go down a weird mind shaft and get infected with a million-year-old mind shaft. (laughs) Yes, that's the answer. I'm going to call therapy going down the mind shaft now. <laughs> but like, I kind of like that. They're like, oh, we'll give him power. We'll make him the top of his field. We'll give him a wife he loves. We'll give him a son. And that doesn't just fix him because you can't just paper over what's you. And that's actually kind of, I'd argue, a healthy message. You can't just like give him stuff and he's fixed. Mm. Yeah. I do think it's interesting that we never really touch on why he's angry, like where the anger comes from, because we concentrate on what he's angry about, which are all very worthy things to be angry about, because he's mostly angry about injustice. And in this book, you know, obviously, and in some others, there are times when he goes too far with that. But still, you know, the things that he's angry about are not unreasonable things to be angry about. It's how he acts on that anger and how much of it he lets out that is sometimes where it goes wrong. 
Yeah, I mean, his backstory is like pretty tragic, like how he grew up and the little hints that we get of that. And it's kind mm. of, you know, there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot of brutalism, both, you know, within his household and any aspect on the streets kind of thing. Yeah, I, yeah, talking this through has made me much more sympathetic to what we're reading in that, which is really fantastic. Hmm. I feel like we could talk about this book for another two and a half hours, but mm. we don't have that time. No. But uh, <laughs> let's get to the end of the plot because we're nearly there. Vimes pauses. He's expelled the summoning dark from himself and he's tackled by Angua just to make sure that he doesn't do anything he might regret because the um, other officers of the watch have been caught up with by soldiers who work for the low king of the dwarfs and they've all come to investigate this cavern which has taken them a long time to find because he's been propelled underwater through this, you know, cavern. They've had to go over the top to find another entrance to get in here. There's all these stalagmites, which seem to be like the weird sort of preserved corpses of trolls and dwarfs, but they don't seem to be fighting each other. Some of them are just sitting next to each other, but they can't find the cube. They don't know where the cube is until Vimes realizes that Nobby's got it. And by the time this is happening, the low king himself has arrived, Reese Reeson, and also, there's been a whole situation with Detritus where the dwarf soldiers chain him up, but with really flimsy chains so that they know he'll break out and give an excuse to kill him. And Vimes is like, don't you even dare do that. When he's confronting the captain, this is where they find that he's got a mark on him where the summoning dark has left. And now all the dwarfs are like kind of freaked out by him because they can see he's been touched by it and survived, which is not normally what happens. Normally, it kills you when it uses you as a vessel. So they're all a bit in awe. Leaves you insane, isn't it? Like- yeah, and I think they do die. I think they said they do die, but they they also they go insane first. He gets the cube off Nobby and doesn't give it to the king, but instead works out how to make it talk because Rascal had these notes about believing he was going to get turned into a chicken or the chicken was coming for him. Possibly he had a pet chicken. It was a little bit unclear, but he kept writing like the sound the chicken made in some of his notes, which was orc, and Vimes works out. This must be an old dwarf word. And it's the old dwarf word for say. Sounds a bit like orc. Uh, And so when he makes the noise, it starts playing. Bashfulson translates it. And it is a message that claims to be Brian Bloodaxe. The first thing that it says, which is possibly another voice. I wasn't quite sure about how many different people were speaking. I think it's three. But the first voice tells the story from the start, the words that Tack wrote. And it's pretty much the same as the version we've already heard, except when it comes to the bit about the troll, it's not the troll is like a corruption of the geode. Tack looks at the egg and the stone that held the crystal that made the two brothers, the human and the dwarf, and says, you've done us a great service. I will give you life as well and created the first troll in gratitude. And this is a hugely different version of the story, which like Bashfulson himself, even though he's very progressive, is shocked by because he's like, I didn't expect this. What? Okay. But then they hear the main part of the message, which is Brian Bloodock saying there wasn't supposed to be a battle at Coombe Valley. This was a secret peace mission that we'd been working on for months. A delegation of trolls and delegation of dwarfs came into the valley to meet and sign a peace treaty, but a mist descended. When it lifted, parts of the two crews were surprised to see the other party there, either because they weren't in on it or for whatever reason, it's not really gone into in too much detail, but some of them assumed it was a trick and an ambush and they started fighting. Before the kings could do something about this, there's a flash flood which washes them all underground into this cavern and they're stuck there. So they make this recording, both the King of the Dwarfs at the time and the Diamond King of Trolls at the time, to say, no, we were trying to make peace and people will say that this was a battle because people probably saw us fighting, but that's not what it was supposed to be. And we're recording this for posterity and we're giving it to one of the young strong dwarfs 
who's hopefully going to take this recording out to the world so that the truth can get out. And he didn't quite manage it. And it was found by the painter much, much, much later, thousand years later, which kind of answers what the hell's been going on this whole time. But the Grags are still like, this is nonsense. You have no evidence. This is real. Someone could have faked that last week. Fake news. <laughs> yeah, the close fake news. It's This part felt especially modern. Like there's a bit where the recording says, and people who don't agree with this, and, and the, the Greg Ardent says, it's all lies. And then the recording says, we'll say that this is all lies, but actually. <laughs> and you're like, this is, this is very <laughs> contemporary. This feels like it could have been written yesterday, parts of this. They have a quick fight, and Bashfulson, whose axe is in his mind, I suppose, <laughs> uh, disarms the other Greg. And they accidentally break this sort of waterfall of limestone, and behind it are the preserved bodies of Brian Bloodaxe, and the old Diamond King of Trolls, frozen forever in a game of thud. That kind of ends the main plot. Everything else is kind of the denouement. There's the trolls and dwarfs kind of come to the valley together. The the current Mr. Shine shows up and he's now become the king and they try to make peace. They let dwarfs and trolls into the cavern, both to try and preserve it and also just to be witnesses. And Vimes realizes that the Low King wanted Vimes to be here and to see it all along, and also that Sally, who he'd been suspicious of the whole book, was actually spying for the Low King. And he has a demand for the Low King, which is like, look, you gotta let me take these Grags back to Ankh Morpork and any of their accomplices to face justice, which he agrees to. Sybil takes Vimes and young Sam off to a point in the valley where they get a photo taken of them, an iconograph by Otto. So they've finally got their family portrait. And then at the banquet, right at the end, everybody's celebrating the peace between dwarfs and trolls, and Sam is late because he's reading the story to his son. It's kind of beautiful. I, don't, I feel like I've spent so much time saying the plot because it's there's a lot that happens. It's long. Uh, it is. It does. It. I mean, it doesn't feel like it outstays its welcome, but there's a lot that happens. It's a. It's a big book. Mm. I mean, it's doing a lot of work of balancing, like, a, a giant historical event and all of the stuff around it with, like, a modern crime mystery and mm. all the kind of, like, Stephen King stuff that we talked about as well. There's a lot. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot. There's it a should lot be happening. longer, really. <laughs> it's a miracle. Yeah, so well done. That it comes in at this page count. Are there any quick favourite bits or any things that we've missed that people want to slip in before we try and answer some of the questions? And I should say we will not get to all the questions because we got sent so many questions mm. and this is a long book already but we'll try and get a few of and them we've in. answered some of them along the way so we've tried yeah there is that quote that i didn't connect being with this book but it's like i don't gallivant i don't have a gal i don't even know how to vent like i can't remember how the quote goes but it's just dissects the word gallivant in all the silliest ways and it's such a long book where space is a premium but he takes the time to just have fun with this phrase and it's nice i think it was an email signature of mine back in the day I think we covered all of the bits that I was uh, excited to chat about. Yeah. I think there's a couple of little quotes that might come out depending on the things that we talk about. But two, I'll just quickly mention because they're short uh, and funny. And we haven't talked a lot about the jokes because there's just so much plot, but there are still a lot of good gags. I really love all the stuff with the dwarfs and their inversion of metaphors around light and dark, where they talk about being in darkened. And if they say someone's seen the light, they feel like they've been blinded and they don't really know the truth. I just thought that was very clever. Revved up like a juice. What was that? Oh, sorry. It was like a blinded by the light lyric <laughs> reference. It's yeah. Very good. Very silly. There's a lot of good footnotes in this, but I think the two gags that I want to mention, one is there's a footnote where it's mentioned that Carrot has the body of a god and then there's a footnote saying, oh, yeah, but, you know, the better class of god, not the ones with the tentacles. <laughs> um 
And then I also liked that Carrot asks Sally if she's ever seen a dead body and she sort of pauses thinking he's making a joke and then realises he's not. And she says, uh, strictly speaking, no, sir, which is both I don't kill people, but also I'm dead, but I can't see myself in the mirror because I'm a vampire <laughs> joke, which I really liked the layers of that. There's heaps more, but I won't. I'll restrain myself. There's too many. Listener, if you want to share your favourite lines from the book, please tweet them at us or send them to us on some other social media. We'd love to hear what they are. Let's try and get through some of these questions, shall we, Liz? All right. That's Sophie's choice, this. All right, because there's so many good ones. I'm going to skip over some really great ones that we've kind of touched on already. But here's one from a chew and sneeze via Twitter. Through the book, the summoning dark is described as evil, but what it really wanted was for Vimes to punish the deep downers for killing the city dwarves. So is it, in point of fact, less evil than vengeful? It's actually the ultimate dwarf judge and executioner. I think it can be both. The kind of way that it's talked about in the book is that it's been around forever, and there's a great phrase where it says, for the last few thousand years it had found employment as a spirit of vengeance kind of deal. And I think that's it. You know, it is this sort of primeval evil force But right now, the niche that it has found is channeling that evil into vengeance. Because let's not forget, most of the time it kills the person it uses to get that vengeance. Mm. It's plus one. Yeah. 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 (laughs) (laughs) All right. Another one from a chew and sneezed um, that's sort of more fun. Angua carries a lightweight silk dress and mouthwash in a little bag when she's a wolf. What do you think you'd carry if you were a werewolf? I don't particularly like mouthwash. So I guess I'd be looking at like a mint or gum type situation. I am assuming that I'm freshening up based on, you know, the odd chicken that I have to steal to satisfy urges. Um, And obviously the change of clothes, so like a little pair of running shorts. Maybe also something to kind of give me the excuse to just be standing there in only a pair of running shorts, like um, like a Fitbit. You wouldn't even have to be charged or anything, but people would be like, oh, yeah, the guy's running. Because he could look at it. (laughs) He could. He's covered in blood, but he's running. It's all right. (laughs) Yeah. That's my experience of running anyway. It feels like being. I was thinking like, yeah, like a smartwatch or a smartphone. So you know where you are when you come to. Angua's kind of werewolf affliction. She never like loses herself and doesn't know where she is and wake up and go, how did I get here? Oh, no, I must have eaten someone. Um, It's not like that. But I wonder if I might black it out because I'm a vegetarian. I don't even want to remember eating chickens. I don't know. Might be useful for me to have a GPS. But surely you'd ravage your way through someone's mushroom farm have to deal with that consequence. <laughs> I'd be like the werewolf equivalent of uh, Count Duckula. Yeah, I like that. Um, well, if we're allowed smartphones, I'd definitely take mine because I never know where I am, even if it's like, as in, I'd, people sort of, you ask someone where something is and they go, oh, it's north. I'm like, I don't know which way north is. I Like, and especially if you've been running around in a different body all night, I think I would need to be able to find my way home. So having a map would be a priority, as mm. well as clothes. So um, I don't know if I'd have a lightweight silk dress. But yeah. Well, I think I changed my mind a little bit. I think, yes, smartphone, good, but also definitely a towel, uh, not just because of Doug Adams, but because you can wear the towel, you can dry yourself off, you can clean yourself. Very useful for a werewolf. You'd need one of those, you know, camping towels that packs up really small. But, yeah, I reckon that'd be the go. I don't think there's an outfit that would be carryable that would also be explainable in the way that your running shorts and Fitbit would be for me. Like, I just, I think, like, if you show up in the middle of a field or, like, I'm imagining myself on a golf course for some reason. I'm not sure what sort of delightful (laughs) 
things to eat there are around a golf course, but Crocodiles. for some reason I think Kangaroos. my old self would end up there. Yeah, I don't know. So maybe um one of those like a little sand bucket and the thing so it looks like I'm doing golf things, but you have to have a whole outfit for golf, so I think that would be untenable. You'd, you'd need the little visor at the very least. Yeah. Mm. And a caddy and a whole bunch of clubs. So I'd need sunscreen. That would also have to go in my bag. If I was going to end up naked somewhere, like as the moon goes down, I can't be outside with no clothes on in the sun. I have to put some sunscreen on. So sunscreen and a towel. And hopefully I end up on the beach. I'd fit right in. You know what? Forget the practicality. I want like um, like a Hawaiian lei or something where I'd- <laughs> I wake up, I put that on, and everyone's like, geez, he's had a good night. And you just get the benefit of the doubt that, like, you've had one too many. A traffic cone, like a collapsible traffic cone. You just stick that on your head and everyone's like, oh, he's on a bender. It's fine. Yep. It's a little bit of a walk of shame, but everyone's like, well, look, it's been a while since I've been out. Good for him. Mm. All right. So the next question comes from Rin Bettencourt via Facebook. Is Willikens the greatest fictional butler? So um, Rin's putting him on par with Alfred. Having read the Franny Fisher books, I think they're cut from the similar cloth. Franny Fisher's butler is called Mr. Butler, and he can definitely hold his own in a fight. So we're, we're talking Alfred Pennyworth, Batman's butler, who yeah. kind of got retconned at a certain point to have excellent fighting skills. He was like a World War II veteran. He's like in the SAS. And he also lives down a drain and summons children down with balloons, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've not merged two pieces of culture there at all. <laughs> Depends which version of Alfred. Like, I think the one that's closest to Willikens is the Sean Pertwee version from the TV show Gotham, who's a bit more rough around the edges, doesn't speak or posh, but can put it on when he needs to. He's the one that reminds me of Willikens. But gee, it's, Jeeves, come on. You can't really go past Jeeves. I mean, he doesn't, like, kill people, <laughs> but he could. I'm sure he could if he needed to. Yeah, he does find all your um, search engine inquiries, which is... Well, he did during the 90s, and he gave that up? I guess he retired. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. But he's he's where they all come from, all of these hyper-competent, can-do-absolutely-anything-a-gentleman-requires butlers, you know? So mm-hmm. I feel like you've got to pay homage to the original. So I would say Jeeps, but I also do love Alfred and Willikins. All right. Next question comes from Joel Molan via Discord. So in this book, we get another chapter in the Nob slash Colin Explores Prejudices in Society miniseries. So how would you rank it against Jingo slash Feet of Clay slash The Fifth Elephant? So we've discussed it a little bit, but... Mm. Hmm. Well, because in Jingo, that's where they dress up as dancing girls and discover feminism because it directly affects them, which is a whole thing. Classic. Here it's a lot more subtle. I think I like this one because, like I said before, I feel like Fred is figuring out that maybe his preconceptions are not quite right, but he still says some things that represent a view that Pratchett is kind of giving an airing so you can look at it and go, hmm, maybe that isn't quite right. Yeah, I kind of like this one the best, I think. This is definitely, I much prefer this than um, the yelling at everybody and eating sugar cubes. Yes. Incident. <laughs> yes. No, I think we talked about this. I think this is a Fred who has had, he has not done the sitcom reboot every um, novel. Like, I feel like Fred is getting to a place and I'm, I'm into it. Hmm. And I liked all the, the specific explorations of art and like the very simplistic answers, but they actually cut to some deeper issues. Like ballet is fancy because money. I mean, ballet is fancy, but like, there's another question about like pole dancing as a sport that we're not going to have time to get into. But like, it does take a lot of effort and training and discipline to be able to be a good pole dancer, but it doesn't seem to get the same level of societal respect, even though it had a resurgence as a fitness trend that other forms of dance do. And that's 
interesting and it's unfair. And I think this, the way that the Nobbs Collins conversation throughout this, like cuts to that is, it's done very well. Mm. Someone else did ask us about Tawny specifically, Glitz 1958. But I, I do just want to slip in that I think most of the time it's quite sympathetic to Tawny and, and particularly because Nobby's always going, I don't see there's any problem with what she does. It's pretty good. There's a weird sort of slightly regressive, it feels, for Pratchett attitude where they sort of talk about pole dancing and, and kind of stripping. That's okay, but not any hanky-panky or actual sex work, which is very much not the usual way that Pratchett talks about that stuff when he's talking about the Seamstresses Guild and that sort of thing. So that felt a bit weird, but it is the kind of thing that I would expect Fred Collin to say as well, and he doesn't quite 100% get away with it, but Nobby doesn't really call him out for it either. So that's the only bit where I felt this really went into territory where I was like, oh, that's a little bit gross, but I think it was maybe meant to be. Yeah, Mrs. Palm could have run in with a quick elbow and just sorted everyone out. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been nice. (laughs) Now, we absolutely don't have time for many more questions. We're just going to squeeze a couple more in. Um, there was a great thread on our Discord between Avril and Zoe and a, a bunch of others is talking about some of the stuff we touched on about what kind of religion uh, is Pratchett trying to depict. And I think at some point, Liz, we're just going to have to do some general topic episodes. And I think religion and the Discworld would be a massive one because there's mm. so much to talk about there. But Avril did have a really interesting question that she talks about the fact that on the Discworld, belief creates gods. And as far as she's concerned, when reading this book, it felt like for Sam Vimes, being a copper is a religion. So does that make the watchman in his head a god? Oof. I mean, I I will say I I love this idea. I don't think so because I think what Pratchett is doing with the watchman is something different. But I'm interested to know what you think about this because I thought this was a brilliant idea. Do you have to believe with the intention of religion or faith for that figure of belief to become officially a god in the disc world. So one one believer with faith is enough to conjure a god, as we know of the story of Om. Mm. But Vimes, I don't think, would have any patience with saying that this was an actual religion because the, the belief thing is kind of like a technicality anyway that belief creates a god. So that's my pitch. I think you're right because there's also the issue that the dwarfs say that their belief system is not a religion. It doesn't have to be. Like there's other kinds of belief system that can be similar. And I think maybe the proof in the pudding there is that Tack is not a god. They don't worship Tack. They don't actually say that Tack exists. They're not really worried about what Tack has to say. They just read Tack's words and he's gone. And it's just fact now. So maybe that's a sign that, yeah, you do actually have to believe something is a god in order for that belief to create the god. And there is a line at the end of Feet of Clay when they're talking on the bridge with Dorfall where somebody mentions, like, if there's a god of policemen and Vime says something like, no, absolutely, there isn't, or, or there's a joke about it. But it's clear that he doesn't think that there should be one. So I think I think the answer mm. is no, but it's a cool idea. I really like it. No, it's a cool idea. But I have been convinced that it's not happening because of intent. Because mm. that if... And this is a terrible analogy they've been working on that whole time and I still hate, but I'm still going to say it because why not? It's like if you want to bake a cake but you don't buy the ingredients, you can still have the concept of cake but you won't end up with one. So like the intention is the ingredients. It's, it's just terrible. It's just terrible. <laughs> it, I'm sorry to say it, but it does hint of somebody who's just hungry at the end of a podcast recording. <laughs> well, I, I am very close to biscuits that are just out of my reach. Oh, no. That's okay. Well, you just have to redefine your intention to have faith in the eating of the biscuits rather than the belief that they simply exist. 
Next one is not so much a question as a pun that I just had to share. Um, this one comes from Felix P via Discord. Is the occasional bit of bacon in a BLT considered a, quote, civil liberty? <laughs> I mean, that's very good yeah. pun. It's very good pun. I think the answer yes. is no, because Sybil absolutely would not allow that liberty. <laughs> She's very anti the yeah, he's taking a liberty with Sybil. Like oh, yeah, I see. It works. It's good. can go both ways. Yeah. It's true. All right. Ah, it's killing me to not like ask all of these, but we'll end on this question from when we were Siamese via Instagram. What would your troll name be, given that trolls are named after the kind of stone that's around their native area? Oh, I like this. Does that mean it has to be the stones? That are local or just the stuff that's around us? Well, I mean, because I, I don't – I moved away from where I was born when I was very, very young, so I don't really have any idea. Back when you were a pebble. I mean, it was in the city. I was born in Sydney, but, you know, then I moved away from there. And the place I remember growing up in the north coast of New South Wales, there was a lot of red clay, which I think kind of makes sense for my hair colouring. <laughs> I don't know what a specific name for that is, but maybe clay, which is a pretty good name. It also It works as a name. Yeah, I like it. Um, I grew up in the Blue Mountains and Darug country in New South Wales, and I am not a little geology person, so I don't have a, a real knowledge mm. of the stones up there. I mean, I can picture them, and I think very fondly of them. But, yeah, I don't have the rock name up my sleeve. Well, that you just reminded me, like, the other option for me would be, because it's, it's Bunjalung land up there, and that's quite volcanic, or it was once upon a time. So there's there's probably something there too. Is that igneous rock that comes out of volcanoes? Oh, my God, I'm going to be so much trouble with my geologist friends. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I should remember this stuff. But I'll stick with clay. They'll stare at you stony-faced. Is that what they're going to do? <laughs> I mean, it's always a rocky relationship with those guys. Uh, they're going to put me in the dirt for this. Mm. Uh, that was not good. But, yes, I think I'll stick with clay. I'll stick with clay. And, I'm, I mean, bluestone could be it, – it's not probably geologically accurate, Matt, but it – it kind of fits it the is name cool. of the place, and it is cool. Yeah, yeah, that suits me. How about you, Liz? Um, I was born in Hong Kong, and it is a very built-up area. As you have to go a little ways out to see like natural landscapes and things like there's beautiful mountains and cliff faces and things. But the thing that I think of most is cement. Like it's very built up, so I think I'd just be some sort of cement troll. Fair enough. Maybe with some, um, yeah, I don't know. But with some decorative bamboo scaffolding, because that's how you, um, when you're building a building, like that's the classic thing in Hong Kong, is they make a scaffolding out of bamboo, and it's really strong, but it just looks like it shouldn't be there. So I think that that would be my troll affectation, my troll jewellery. I mean, it's a nice look. It is a nice look. Hmm. I, I like that we're all very down to earth, and like none of us decided we were like a gemstone or something. Yeah, I'm cement. Which one's the one where it's solid? There's like concrete and cement, and one's like the bit where it's like going around and around in like the the fun trucks that you still enjoy as an adult, even though you like pretend you don't. Um, and one's the the set version. Mm, I don't. Know. I don't know. Do you feel that you've gotten out of the fun truck yet, or are you still in that stage? Every time you see a cement mixer and you're with someone, you have to point out there is a cement mixer. I think that means that you are. You should be called cement then. That <laughs> okay. that joie de vivre uh, points. Back at you as a cement rather than a concrete. Uh, well, nice. con- concrete's like cement, but with bits of bitumen in it, isn't it? Or, or stone or something. What did you call me? <laughs> oh, no. Oh, what have I done? We haven't even mentioned the best. Well, I don't know about the best, but the, the most memorable part in the book when Fred's trying to remember the name for what it's called when a bunch of women go out drinking on the town and he says, oh, what is it? Oh, yeah. It's like, 
Minge drinking. drinking. <laughs> Which is so wrong and yet very funny at the same time. Does that mean something else in England? Like, I don't know. Uh, no, it means what it means here. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. That one clanged for me. Uh, like, like so much troll jewelry. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> as much as we wish we had time for more questions and more discussion, because this, we could talk about this book for another 10 years. I think it's still not exhausted. We do have to finish up. So that brings us to the end of the episode. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, like I said, this conversation turned me around and made me think about the book in different ways, which is, you know, exactly what you would hope for. So thank you for indulging all of that. Oh, you, thank you for joining us and for bringing all your insights. Yeah. Um, if people want to know what you're up to at the MCA, where's the best place for them to go? I mean, there's the MCA website, so they could definitely log on there. If they want to know what I'm up to, yeah, they can follow me on Instagram. I put up nice pictures. I'm happy yeah. with that. Yeah, Matthew. I can test to that. It's yeah, true. thank you. Matthew Rodeo, just my name, but you'd switch out that last letter. Um, and we'll link to that in our episode notes so you can find Matt online and see pictures, including pictures. Is that where you put pictures of your dog? Because I know I've seen pictures of your dog. Absolutely. So, yeah, my Instagram is definitely a, a home to pictures of my dog. <laughs> Good, as it should be. Um, and look, thank you, listener, for listening. This has been a very plot-heavy episode. We didn't get as much into the discussion, perhaps, as we might have liked. It's just a big book. We'll have to come back to it at some point. Um, and I, I actually- It's a hefty boy. I am very taken with this idea of doing some more discussing a theme more broadly episodes, because there's just some stuff that will benefit from that sort of discussion and having a bit more time around it. So hopefully we'll do that. And if you send us a question we didn't get to, please know we read them all and they were all amazing. We just didn't have time for them. Um, but maybe we'll try and answer some of them in future. We'll keep them. We've got them all recorded here. We are, of course, going to be back next month in December. And we're completing a trilogy of sorts, Liz, because we've done Thud the Board Game. We've done Thud the Novel. And next up, we're doing something else that's Thud related. We're going to be discussing... Where's my cow? Yes. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to this. It's a special crossover episode with the hosts of our Sibling Pratchett podcast, The Truth Shall Make You Fret, Joe and Francine, which is going to be heaps of fun. We've been talking about doing something like this uh, for quite a while. We're going to be discussing the actual print version of the book that you can get in the round world, which I won't spoil it, is a bit different from the one in the novel. This episode was unfortunately delayed, so there's no chance for you to send in questions for our Where's My Cow episode, but you can listen to it because it'll be out almost immediately after this. And some good news, we are returning to do some more questions about Thud in the very near future. So watch your podcast feed for news of that. Which brings us all the way to the end. Thank you for listening. Thanks for sending in questions. Thank you to all of our subscribers who make it possible for us to make this show every month and to put in little bonus episodes when our schedule gets bumped around. Uh, we couldn't do that without your support. Thank you so much. And remember, when you come to the end of the podcast and you want us to stop, just say Hadra. That means stop, Commander. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Matt Roden. Pratchat is produced and edited by me, with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchat Podcast, and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via pratchatpodcast.com. 
join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchat61. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.